1: Astonishing Legends would like to thank Simply Safe, Best Fiends, The Great Courses Plus, Squarespace, Sunsoil, our contributors at Patreon.com, and you, our listeners, for making tonight's show possible.
2: There are several origin stories for the creation of the Ouija Board. Most of them involve a fair amount of speculation, and experts will tell you its beginnings are ultimately unknown. The Ouija Board's creation seems to have been intentionally shrouded in mystery, Perhaps because it stretches further back into human history than we imagine. Or perhaps because those interested in profiting from it felt that an unknown providence was excellent marketing. Whatever the case, even though the Ouija board may be commonly thought of as a beginning in spirit communication tools, the reality is it's an evolution of pre-existing methods and devices. It owes its existence entirely to the early spiritualist movement and, beyond that, an explosion of interest in séances and spirit communication as a whole, specifically in the parlors of Parisian homes in the mid-1800s. Few researchers have done more to get at the root of this than noted expert and historical authority on planchettes, séance devices, and early spirit communication tools, Brandon Hodge. Based in Austin, Texas, Mr. Hodge is certainly doing his part to keep Austin weird, as the curator and owner of one of the largest collections of automatic writing planchettes in the world. In addition to this, he has a wide variety of occult items related to palmistry, astrology, mesmerism, hypnotism, and one of my personal favorites, crystal scrying. His website, mysteriousplanchette.com, is one of the best online resources of well-researched information on the topic available. What is an automatic writing planchette, you may ask? Well, for those of you who've ever used a Ouija board, the planchette is the small, now heart-shaped platform that you rest your hands on as you settle in to talk to the spirits. It turns out, the planchette was the predecessor to the Ouija board, which in itself was simply a well-marketed version of what is known as a talking board. Tonight, we begin our special Halloween series on the Ouija board by taking an in-depth look at its history and origins. Our goal is to better understand how something so devilish found its way into people's homes from all walks of life and various religions, especially when it is mostly thought of as a way to communicate with the dead and possibly tap into a greater metaphysical consciousness with answers available for every question.
3: Welcome back to Astonishing Legends.
2: I'm Scott Philbrook, and this is Forrest Burgess. People have told me, Betty, Facebook is a great way to keep in touch with old friends. At my age, if I wanted to keep in touch with old friends, I'd need a Ouija board. Betty White. (laughs) Join us tonight for our
3: first show of the Halloween season on the Ouija board.
2: And we're back. Goodbye. Wait, wait, wait. Don't. I I didn't close the session. B-O-U-F-F-A-N-T. font. Seriously? That's what yeah, it's that, spelling look, out? I, I, that's my Ouija board impression. I, I don't always make sense. Okay, you should <laughs> understand that. Plus, that was a little fast. If the planchette was moving that fast, people would run out of the room. <laughs> Well, we've all
3: definitely had some Ouija board sessions like that where it just seems like nonsense. But I also feel like a lot of people, myself included, have had them where the information coming through did seem like it was truly coming from an outside source. Uh, Sometimes one that seems like it just wants to mess with you.
2: No way. Really? Are you serious? You've. Oh, yeah. Uh, I'm, I'm asking Scott for this for the first time. You've actually had, sat in a session where you got something? Oh, yeah, yeah. I did when I was younger. Really? Yeah, absolutely. Well,
3: we're going to have to bake that into part two. I we're don't know. I, it's, uh, I don't remember the details, honestly. I
2: just remember being shocked at what wow. it was doing and how it was working. Well, we're going to take a look at how and why possibly that is happening. Some, of course, rational theories, some woo woo. I could tell you my experience. Well, first of all, I would guess most everybody knows what a Ouija board is, although there will be some people out there who have never experienced one or maybe even not seen one really until they realize like, oh, that's that iconic image. But when I was growing up, it was a really popular game, which is one of the points we're going to explore tonight. It was a family board game in a lot of sense, but it's one of those weird things that the family across the street from me as I was growing up, they had one. You know, it's stacked with the sorry and right above Monopoly mm-hmm. and the Stratego. Clue. And yeah, it's just one of the board games. It's like, I just thought as a kid, it's like, wow, what possessed you, pun intended, to buy that thinking like, yeah, we're just gonna like summon some spirits tonight after a game of sorry? <laughs> it's just the weirdest thing. And I think one time as kids, of course, we actually sat down, and this is how I think most people's sessions go especially for kids, you put your fingers on the planchette, it starts to move. It's like, dude, stop moving. The, you're moving the thing. It's like, no, I'm not. I'm not moving it. You are. Yes. That's <laughs> exactly. The and it moves. And then uh, you start throwing things at each other and you go do something else. Yeah. That's been my experience anytime I've sat down on the Ouija board. And that's been the only time I've sat down.
3: Well, and other times you sit down and, you, and it doesn't move at all. Or right. you're so <laughs> busy. It's the most boring game ever. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Or you're busy trying to keep the other person from moving it. You feel like, oh, they're <laughs> doing it, so I'm just going to hold it down. There's all this stuff happened. So listen, we got a lot of great stuff to cover on this yep, tonight. Yep. Uh, but before we do, a few quick bits of
2: housekeeping. Firstly, we've closed out the sales of the charity shirt for the Kecksburg Volunteer Fire Department and their UFO Festival. And even though we announced that you had helped us raise nearly $7,000 for them, there were still two weeks of sales left, and we apparently underestimated you folks, which was a big mistake. Uh, yeah, I got to
3: tell you what. Here's the follow-up to that. We sold a total of 752 of those shirts, and wow. on uh, Monday of this week, when we're recording this, we actually sent just over 12 thousand dollars to the kecksburg volunteer fire department and i am not lying when i tell you that ron Struble was beyond flabbergasted and grateful as he was when we told him it was seven so uh, in (laughs) fact i want to share this email from him he sent this just today he said i can't believe it we thank you so much there are great people in this world who do not bs and keep their word i'm so glad we made the connection we greatly appreciate it from all of us at the kecksburg volunteer fire department again thank you and your listeners. I look forward to meeting you next year at the Kecksburg UFO Festival, if not before Ronnie Strubel, Chairman,
2: Kecksburg UFO Festival. Well, we've said it before and we'll say it again. You guys out there did a great thing. Really good.
3: Yes, you did. And uh, in other news, those of you that skipped our special announcement last week may have noticed some changes took place here at Astonishing Legends. Astonishing Al, our logo, has a whole new look. And on top of that, we have a brand new website and have made several updates to our YouTube channel.
2: Yeah, the, the crux of what's going on can be heard in our last Minnesota announcement. But for those of you who haven't heard that yet, the website has an all new look and navigation and is a ton easier to use. So if you're really wanting to get the backstory on particular episodes, visit Tessa's amazing blog where she's making a new post every day for October. Or check out most of the books we've mentioned on the air and even purchase them
3: from our revised Much Easier to Navigate bookstore. There's all new merch, too, including some special Halloween hoodies and shirts. So there's been a lot of changes over there. And uh, when I mentioned the YouTube channel, we're actually going to be adding more and more content to that in the coming months. But right now, you can find every single episode of Astonishing Legends from 2019 up there. Additionally, very soon, we'll be adding every new episode there shortly after they've posted to our RSS podcast feed. So you'll be able to check out new shows there, too. Right now, it's all of 2019, and soon 2020 will begin to catch up. Uh, then we'll go back and add the earlier years.
2: Oof, that is a lot of computer crunching time there because uh, Scott wanted to, and I did too, wanted to give you the extra visual experience that goes along with listening. And Scott, how does that work?
3: Well, yeah, we have some friends that are After Effects gurus over at Outpost East in uh, Nova Scotia, and we asked them to uh, zhuzh up the logo a little bit and Mm -hmm. uh, give it some animation because there's nothing more boring than just looking at a static frame of a logo when you're watching a podcast on YouTube. So (laughs) we get a little smoke, and and in in the Christmas episode, there's snow, and in the Halloween episodes, there's bats flying around. It's fun. So it's something to keep you... and, And also, there's a little waveform, like the on Dateline that matches what we're saying. So it's pretty exciting. It is very cool. Yeah, I will, I will say. It takes days to render each episode in After Effects <laughs> it, on my computer, our, our show computer, which is actually pretty powerful. So that tells you, right. gives you an idea of that. So Well, uh, we do
2: go the extra mile and, and I, I will say it's very cool to glance over, you know, you're usually doing something else when you uh, listen to a podcast, which is the great thing about audio medium, you can do other things, but I think my dad might be the only one who actually looks the whole time. <laughs> at the audio still frame <laughs> while he's listening to the show. Well, we'll get this will give him something to keep him stimulated then. <laughs> exactly. Well, on another note, in that special announcement we made, we talked about the fact that we had transcripts done of the entire back catalog, and we were putting them on Patreon for $5 and above patrons.
3: Yeah, two updates on that. One, we failed to take into consideration how useful those transcripts are for folks with disabilities. That said, our archived episode transcripts aren't great. They're so expensive Mm. to do. We had them done by artificial intelligence to save money, and they don't have uh, speaker names, for example, and they have a lot of mistakes in them. So there's two things we're going to do. Firstly, we're making them available to all patrons at every level, not $5 and above. And then we're going to try and start repairing them so we can put proper and uh, useful corrected versions of them up for free Right at astonishinglegends.com so that folks with disabilities can easily access them.
2: Yeah, this is going to take a little bit, though, because the first 186 episodes were all done by AI, or actually, Scott's note, is that Al? Astonishing Al did them? No, that's
3: artificial intelligence.
2: I see. AI, not AL, yes. (laughs) I wasn't going to criticize Al for being uh, kind of lackadaisical about it. Well, anyway, they're a bit of a mess, whoever did them. Useful overall, but imprecise, to say the least. But that's 7,200 pages of transcripts, folks, and they all need updated speaker names and corrections made to them. So a few listeners have contacted us volunteering to help with this, and we've been so busy, we haven't had a chance to get back to you yet. But you will be definitely hearing from us. Moving forward, all new episodes are being transcribed by humans. So a lot more reliable until the machines take over. Yes, indeed. Uh, Which means we'll
3: be able to get current and ongoing transcripts posted for free to the website much sooner than the old ones. It's just the archives that need a little work. Uh, All right, I I think we're ready to go here, right? Oh, hold on, hold on. Wait a second there, man. Uh, You forgot about my turn on the small screen. Oh, right. How could I forget that? Uh, Maybe (laughs) it's because I was unavailable to do it myself, so I didn't get any screen time.
2: Yes, you were uh, already out of town by then, but you snooze, you lose, my friend. Well, folks, look, a while back, I was invited Invited to be on a brand new tv show about cars called autobiography and that's pretty clever yeah it's got Auto. it's got a little uh, backslash there biography. yeah yeah i wish i'd thought of it well scott and i both love cars and these guys do too this show is it's pretty cool it's a fascinating look at some of the world's most significant cars and those guys are fans of astonishing legends so they invited us on to talk about james dean's famous porsche Little bastard. Yeah, I was already on the East Coast, so I couldn't go. Right, I, right. I, I right. remember when you did that, though. It was a lot of fun, right? Yeah, we went to the studios, and I was—I uh, amazed myself at how much I actually still remembered because it was still kind of fresh. So. I actually didn't look like an idiot for (laughs) 20% of it. Yeah, it it was really cool. These guys are really nice. They were super friendly, really fun to talk to. And I really appreciated that these guys also love mysterious angles about really famous cars. That just fascinated me.
3: Well, I actually can't wait to see this. And not just to see Forrest on TV, but also because this show is right up my alley. And it's coming out next week on Motor Trend TV, Motor Trend TV On Demand, and of course, the Motor Trend app All of which you won't be surprised to hear that I already have.
2: (laughs) Well, of course. But as I said, it's about cars that are connected to mysteries, crimes, or other famous events, which is pretty much right in both of our wheelhouses.
3: Okay, I think that covers all the housekeeping for now. Let's jump into the show. Let's go get that uh, Ouija board out (laughs) of the closet.
2: Well, first off, Scott, should we include some kind of a... How should I say a warning, a caution? uh, I guess the board game didn't have any kind of a warning, but should we do a a buyer be a listener beware warning here? Yeah. You know, I feel like uh,
3: it's just like when you're going in and out of your house. Don't leave the door unlocked. (laughs)
2: Yeah, that's uh, probably a a good advice here. Well, we just want to stress that it's probably not a good idea to play around with a Ouija board unless you know what you're doing, because even then you could end up with some unwanted consequences. And we're going to hear about some of those towards the end of the series here. Many people have said that uh, Ouija boards and seances, it's kind of like picking up hitchhikers, which is also, I hear, not recommended because you never know who you're going to get. It might be a really nice and interesting person, or you might get a serial killer. But even if you don't believe in any of this at all, if you don't believe it works, maybe you've tried it and nothing happened. You might ask yourself why you don't believe in it, or why you really stopped messing around with one. Is it because deep down there's a genuine fear you could be wrong? Well, I'll tell you one thing I've
3: learned from doing our show. Sometimes the things that cause problems don't really give a crap if you believe in them. (laughs) (laughs)
2: <laughs> We've said that from the beginning. <laughs> yes, we they have. They don't require your belief. No, fact, they don't. these things happen to believers and atheists and agnostics, all uh, one and the same. And I also wanted to, uh, to pay for the, uh, Gary Oldman's laugh from Dracula there, but I, I think we probably can't afford the rights to that. Uh, I don't know. I think if it's really short, we might get away with it. I don't know. The evil laugh. Yeah. After like, if you don't believe in this at all.
3: I'll tell you this. We, you know, we uploaded 36 or 39 videos to YouTube. For our newly populated YouTube channel, when we did all the 2019 stuff. And already two of them have been flagged for copyright (laughs) because they've got little algorithms that are looking at them. So, I mean, YouTubers already know this. And uh, yeah. it's, it, both of the claims are not accurate, but of course I have to fight them if I want to, because uh, right, right. one of them is about stock music, which we purchased fair and square with licenses from Pond5, which yeah. is a great resource for that stuff. But now I've got to get, it's, my, it's up to me to prove that. So they're still well, letting us course. play them. We just can't monetize those, which we can't monetize any of them because we don't have enough people looking at the channel anyway, but it bugs me. We're like red flags. Yes, I, no, I
2: know what you mean. Well, it's the same <laughs> thing with the, uh, with the transcripts. There's uh, artificial intelligence is laughing at us. Yes. Pretending to be the Rube. I don't know what I'm doing. I'm getting everything wrong. Did you license this music? I don't know, but we're going we're gonna to charge you for it. <laughs> uh, until the day when they said like, no, no, you've been snookered. Uh, we're a ringer here and uh, we know exactly what you're doing and we've taken over everything. So let's leave all that digital and uh, computer intelligence behind for a moment and take a look at something that may be tapping into, in a mechanical way, an intelligence from beyond, which is invisible and just as mysterious as AI to some degree. And so for a lot of good information, we turn to an article that Tess and the Ark found, which I found really comprehensive, well-written and of course, it's from the esteemed Smithsonian Magazine, and that article is called The Strange and Mysterious History of the Ouija Board, Tool of the Devil, Harmless Family Game, or Fascinating Glimpse into the non Mind. Hmm. And that was written by Linda Rodriguez McRobbie and published on October 27th, 2013. We'll of course have a link to that, but yeah, it it gave a lot of inspiration for the narrative and the framing, the questions we're going to be asking tonight and answering, but let's start off with the description of what we're talking about. As we said previously here, pretty much everybody I think knows or has seen a Ouija board or has seen the name, but there, but there's a lot of people out there that uh, they maybe have heard of it, but they've never really seen the board or never made the two together where they see the image and it's like, oh, that's what that is. I've never played with one. I don't know anybody nowadays that owns one, but it was a bigger deal in days of yore. So the Ouija board is also sometimes called a spirit board or a witch board or a talking board, or uh, what's the one uh, you you came up with, Scott? Uh, Egyptian luck board. I I got that
3: from uh, Brandon Hodge's website, who we'll be talking to (laughs) this evening.
2: Yeah. Well, uh, whatever you call it, they have taken on different looks over the years, but essentially the layout is the same in some form or another. And it has generally stayed the same over the years in its basic layout. The original marketed toy, and I put that in quotation marks, because that's what it was referred to then as kind of a toy when it was mass marketed. But you again, we're going to take a look at attitudes back then and how we view it now. And a lot of people would say, like, I don't really know if that's a toy. If younger children should be playing with this thing, if adults should be playing with this thing, it doesn't seem that harmless. But, you know, over the years, it's always been considered a family game, an amusement. And it was comprised of a thin rectangular wooden board that had the letters of the alphabet printed on it in the center in two semi-circular rows, one above the other. Remember uh, uh, Lady Wonder, her oh, little yeah. keyboard? Yes, of course yeah, I to do. save yeah. space, half the alphabet is above the other, so poor Lady Wonder didn't have to go trotting 15 feet down to the other end of the keyboard. Right. So you can <laughs> just kind of peck out uh, stuff there. That's the kind of the same idea here with a rectangular wooden board. And those letters were positioned in the center The word yes would be in the upper left corner of the board, often next to an illustration of a smiling sun, and the word no would be in the upper right corner, next to often a crescent moon with a face and a star next to that. Under the semicircles of letters were printed the numbers 1 through 9 and then 0 in a straight line. Below that, at the bottom of the board, is the word goodbye. Presumably to me, the goodbye is for the spirits you're talking to to let you know they're done with your shenanigans and they've had enough of your nonsense and and now it's time for them to go. But we'll say this now, if you ever do decide to mess with one, all the participants should always say goodbye to close out the session and close the portal to the other side, whether or not you believe in any of this at all. We haven't said that in a while. Yes, it has been a while. People were missing it. Yes. Oh, and by the way, for folks that
3: have been asking, because we just introduced a new thermal style steel laser etched mug to the store, but we don't have any ceramic style or ceramic looking mugs, we are going to be bringing those back. We're just uh, working on uh, picking them out. So just have some patience there. They will Mm -hmm. be coming back. Anyway, the way that the Ouija board works ideally is that a couple of people Mm -hmm. sit down and place their fingertips around the edges of a heart-shaped or teardrop-shaped letter number indicator called a planchette. Now, the planchette typically is a small, flat-surfaced platform supported on small legs, these days with little felt pads on the bottom so it can slide around on the surface of the board. It will usually have a small circular hole near the apex so you can see the letter or number that it's pointing Mm -hmm. to. And the hole can be empty or it can have a little plastic or a clear plastic window or glass insert or magnifying glass embedded in it. But a planchette can also be used on its own for spirit communication. We're going to learn a lot about that tonight. Uh, You you would have these, and originally they had a writing implement stuck down into them, which would act as one of the three supports, and it would move over a piece of paper. Right. The dictionary.com definition of a planchette is, quote, a small heart-shaped board supported by two casters and a pencil or stylus that when moved across a surface by the light unguided pressure mm-hmm. of the fingertips is supposed to trace meaningful patterns or written messages revealing subconscious thoughts psychic phenomena clairvoyant messages etc uh, <laughs> it's the etc you got to watch out for yeah that's right and and regarding two or more participants I can't see why one person couldn't use it and I'm sure people have tried it by themselves and yeah. continue to do so but the board game version was meant to be just that an amusing board game and uh who plays with one of those by themselves but uh (laughs) nowadays (laughs) i'm sure (laughs) they do some are probably going to get one out tonight nowadays the most common mass-produced ouija board you see around is made out of cardboard and the planchette is plastic now here's the other thing for us and i forgot when we were talking to brandon who you folks are going to hear from in a little bit i forgot Mm -hmm. to ask him this but and i don't know if you remember this i seem to remember that Part of the protocol was that the two people using it would sit across from each other, Indian style, or we would, and put each corner of the board on your knees, on your kneecaps. And that was something about um, completing the circle or something like that. We should ask Brandon about that. That's interesting.
2: I have heard that. Yeah. Well, you just stirred up a memory. However, to me, that seems like a very uneven surface. because. It's like well, And a lot easier to do when around. you're like ten years old than it is you know but it all advanced. but it also right it also sounds like urban legend lore like it only works if you're touching the board with your knees yeah and yeah. uh but as I said anytime I'd heard anybody use it it's like stop moving it you I'm not moving it you're moving it and then uh yeah and then it uh, it just turns into like I don't think this thing works right but that's not everybody it's just people I knew and I didn't have much uh of an experience with it but As we'll hear, there might be reasons why it moves that, I know it sounds maybe not as mysterious, but to me, still very fascinating in a possible way that this thing works. Well, let's get into the beginning history of how did this family board get its start? And to get us started, there's really two experts we're going to look at here. One of them's with us, but both are mentioned in the SmithsonianMag.com article by Linda Rodriguez-McRobbie are Robert Murch and Brandon Hodge. And both these gentlemen have extensive knowledge of the Ouija board, spirit devices, the the history of talking boards in general. Both gentlemen have appeared on TV as experts and been guests on radio shows and now podcasts. And they're going to really inform our story here, the narrative of the, the history of this talking boards. So we're going to hear from both of them, Robert Murch from the pages of the article in print and Brandon Hodge as a guest here. You're going to actually hear from him. There's an interesting quote from Murch in that article where he said that there wasn't much information about the origins of the Ouija board, which he thought was odd, stating, quote, for such an iconic thing that strikes both fear and wonder in American culture, how can no one know where it came from?
3: Yeah. And that's an interesting idea. I mean, there has been a lot of research done by these gentlemen and others trying to figure out the origin story of the Ouija board or Ouija board. We'll talk about that too, the pronunciation and the (laughs) name, Um, but it's a little bit foggy and uh, we're going to find out whether or not that was intentional or not. And before we go any further, I did want to point out one thing for us that I don't know if you came across in the research, which is Mm -hmm. interesting about this article that you're starting with from Smithsonian Magazine. One of the gentlemen who was an eyewitness to the earliest uses of the planchette, which preceded the talking boards, was Mm -hmm. Robert Dale Owen. He was a, as Brandon says on his website, a prominent reformer and spiritualist. He was also a U.S. senator. And supposedly he witnessed some of these, uh, because he was a spiritualist, some Mm -hmm. of these events overseas, which we're going to be getting into here in a little bit, at the beginning of the planchette's heyday. And what's fascinating about Mr. Owen is that he was one of the foremost sponsors on the bill that established the Smithsonian. Oh, yeah, so that's pretty cool, yeah. right? I have uh two or three tabs open on that. That's probably why the fan's going crazy on my computer. There's 75 tabs open on this one, but uh, pretty yeah, fascinating. Yeah, that name stuff. is familiar, right? But I I didn't make that connection to the Smithsonian. I drilled down on that as I often do. I, I'll go down mm-hmm. a rabbit hole of something that's probably kind of irrelevant to the topic, and then I'm 30 minutes later. I'm like, why did I pursue this? But uh, <laughs> and but it was, never,
2: <laughs> rarely does he come back. No, yeah.
3: and I found the actual type. Uh, it was referenced in a book where it uh, mentions how. He uh, put that bill forth to get the Smithsonian established, which was uh, pretty fascinating. Mm. But anyway, all right, tonight we're going to be talking to one of the experts that's actually mentioned in the Smithsonian article. His name is Brandon Hodge. He runs a website, mysteriousplanchette.com. I actually want to read you a little bit from his bio here. He is a historian, a collector, an author, and an occult archaeologist specializing in the history of planchettes, Ouija boards, and spirit communication devices. Brandon's research on spiritualism history has appeared in the pages of the Smithsonian Magazine, an article we just referred to, actually, and his popular Ghosts in the Machines column appears every quarter in the pages of the Paranormal Review. That's the magazine of the Venerable Society for Psychical Research, which we have mentioned many, many times on this show. He has served as on-air talent for dozens of popular radio and television programs, including a segment featuring his Seance Artifact Collection on Science Channel's hit show, Oddities. Travel Channel's Ouija-related Patience Worth episode of Mysteries at the Museum, and even a feature on the iconic institution Texas Country Reporter. A respected lecturer, Brandon has lent his expertise in the occult field to museums and academic institutions worldwide. Brandon owns the world's finest collection of writing planchettes and other seance-related devices, all featured on his popular website, the aforementioned mysteriousplanchette.com. And that collection lives within his museum-like home, itself featured on Austin's Weird Homes Tour, which he's going to talk about tonight. So this is the gentleman that we're bringing to you tonight, because this is one of those folks that really has all the background and information on this. And we really wanted to get down to the history of the Ouija board, the talking board. And it turns out there's a whole lot of things that preceded it. But first, why don't we get to know Brandon a little bit? Well, everybody, I would like to welcome Brandon Hodge to the show. We were so lucky to get connected with him, and uh, we were so behind the eight ball. We actually reached out to him the day before we were planning to record and said, hey, can you come (laughs) on the show? And he made it work. So, Brandon, thank you so much for coming on the show. My
1: pleasure. Happy to be here.
3: It's our understanding that you're a historian, collector, you're into archaeology as well, and you are specifically, uh, you manage the website mysteriousplanchette.com, which has a treasure trove of historical information about planchettes. That's one of the things we want to hear about tonight. But you also know about talking boards and that sort of thing as well. Just give us a brief overview of your background. You, you, I think, you had said that your father was an archaeologist.
1: My father's an amateur archaeologist, so okay. and, and a collector as well. And so, I really kind of picked up that collecting bug from him. But he's also very widely regarded in academic circles for the for the work and, and research he's done. So, a lot of parallels between what my father does and, and what I've come to do.
3: And you have an academic background as well, right?
1: I do. Yes, I attended the University of Texas. I was the last class of a millennial, and uh, I have degrees in both English and history from UT.
3: So I guess that informs your point of view with regard to collecting and also historical, gathering historical information. It did. So
1: it all came about at once. You know, I was always a weird kid, very heavily influenced by the time-life mysteries of the unknown series and, and books of that nature. Uh, I remember the Scholastic Book Fair Haunted Houses uh, was really influential to me. I really loved ghost stories on Halloween as a kid. When I moved to Austin in 1996 to go to UT, I began working the magic counter in Barton Creek Square Mall at this little gift shop. And I kind of got stuck on that magic counter. A lot of people didn't want to work it. And I really took to it. I started learning card tricks and everything as a result. And I got bored with card tricks pretty easily, but I began to meld the history that I was studying at the University of Texas with magic performance. And I created, kind of ahead of its time in a way, this was the late 90s, I created a haunted antiques show that had a very seance-like atmosphere. And I was drawing on real-world history of spiritualism to inform this performance. And this was a what we term sort of a bizarre magic performance. Bizarre magicians tend to be very macabre and and dabble in occult themes and more focused on the creepy storytelling aspects of magic, more so than the gotcha found your card trick aspects. And so my earliest collectibles were purchased as authentic antiques to populate this haunted antiques show. Well, I gave up performance right about the time I graduated college. I also gave up that performance and moved on. But, you know, the research bug had stuck with me as well as the collecting bug. So that never went away. And over the years, that sort of grew as, as my interest solidified into that.
3: Where did you first get interested in planchettes and, the, and that sort of historical stuff? Well, like what brought you around to collecting that sort of thing?
1: So what brought me around to collecting or focusing on automatic writing planchettes was the discovery by about 2010, a lot of the talking board collectors had begun to come out of the woodwork and meet one another. We kind of had all these vague conceptions of one another online and in forums and sniping one another on eBay. But uh, in 2010, we formed a collector's group on Facebook and began communicating and sharing data and sharing knowledge. It was at that time that I realized you know, there were a lot of talking board collectors. No one collected automatic writing planchettes. And I had always kind of favored them. And I'd been sort of silently accumulating them. Uh, they were often much cheaper at that time than talking boards. They were certainly more rare. And I just had been quietly buying them up for a few years at that point know, I always thought I was gonna run into some other top dog collector that, you know, some old guy on the East Coast that just had a, a barn full of these old artifacts. And uh, it was about 2009, 2010 that I began to realize that I was that guy. (laughs) And as we started trying to tell the more comprehensive history of talking boards, there was no one there that was really advocating for the history of the automatic writing planchette. And it had not been written, unlike at that time, there were lots of blog posts and particularly around Halloween, local news stories about the Ouija board, a lot of it carrying very erroneous data, you know, about where the Ouija got its name and these sorts of things. And it repeated a lot of these like early internet tropes that had kind of taken hold throughout history. So a lot of that work was correcting that record. But for the planchette, there was really nothing. And so, as I've often phrased it, I I suddenly felt it was my duty to rescue the writing planchette from the dustbin of history, and sort of dust it off and present it. And in 2012, I debuted my website, mysteriousplanchette.com, to showcase all of that accumulated history that I had assembled.
3: Right. So, Brandon, in addition to all this, you personally own and curate an impressive collection of all kinds of artifacts related to spirit communication, right? I mean, we can see here on Zoom, you're literally surrounded all kinds of great stuff, and we'll be sharing that video on our Patreon ultimately. But for our listeners who can't see you right now, can you tell them a little bit about your collection and where you live?
1: I live in a home in Hyde Park, Austin, a 1940s post-war cottage bungalow that uh, is floor-to-ceiling front-to-back, a very museum-like display of my collection. My specialty is, of course, automatic writing planchettes. And my sort of general catch-all term for this archive and collection here is is the mysterious planchette which is also informs my website my social media and it encompasses sort of a general occult collection as a base uh and this uh is going to be palmistry astrology mesmerism and hypnotism crystal scrying so i have a formidable collection of artifacts from many occult disciplines But my specialty is really the history of spiritualism and seances, and in uh, in particular, the archeology span of spirit communication devices. So once you enter my home, you get sort of barraged with a a pretty dense concentration of uh, museum cases, lighted displays, as well as lots of framed artifacts on, on the walls. It's really floor to ceiling, front to back, concentration of spirit communication artifacts. The front room is largely my collection of my specialty, which is automatic writing planchettes, uh, which number uh, probably over 150 at this point, if uh, if not closer to 200 as far as uh, numbers I own. I own more talking boards than that, many of which you can see on the on the screen behind me, which are pretty much on every every wall of the home in various frame displays. So uh, as you can see behind me, pretty much every wall, I'm a maximalist, so you know, I leave no no wall space uncovered. So pretty much floor to ceiling talking boards and planchettes and and books and artifacts and cases and uh which extends everything uh from seance, uh, expose, magicians, items like wrapping hands and talking skulls, which were used by stage magicians to emulate spirit wrapping, to spirit trumpets and uh, phrenology artifacts and other fortune-telling apparatus. And so um, it is featured on Austin's Weird Homes tour. So once a year, except this year, thanks to the pandemic. But every year I open it up and uh, let the public inside and come take a
0: look.
2: worm thank you for listening to astonishing legends let's get back to the show really takes somebody who is that focused on a single subject to really spend the time to soak in all this history and the items and all the knowledge about them and end up being one of the few people on the planet who is that knowledgeable about all these items and thank goodness some of these folks have, because as we'll see, this was a pretty big movement in the history of at least the United States and as well as Europe and other places with their own traditions. But few people were really marking this item down in the history books. I'll tell you what, I love his house from what we could see from
3: it in our Zoom session. I love when he said he was a maximalist. <laughs> I actually heard that term. Marie Kondo, get out of here. I mean, this guy, (laughs) he's got stuff on every inch of every wall, but it's all just, I mean, just in the shot we saw, it was all talking board related. But as you heard, he's got all kinds of stuff
2: in the house. All these items in his house, for him, spark joy. So Marie Kondo should cut him some slack on that because each little item has its own history and is a part of this fascinating history that few people, like I said, have really been taking note of. So thankfully, someone is, and it's a real chapter in cultural history. Well, coming
3: up in this next segment with him, he's getting ready to talk a little bit about spiritualism and the Fox sisters. And maybe you can give our audience a little bit of an overview on that before we get into that with him.
2: Right. To understand where Ouija boards come from and these planchettes and spirit talking devices, you know, I just want to say he seems to be fine with it because as he will tell you, he doesn't actually use them. He just collects them. Right. There's a difference. And it's not like, oh, I just purchased the most haunted planchette in the world. I'm sure it's fine. And that has to keep in a case like Ed and Lorraine Warren with the with a raggedy Ann doll. There's nothing with that freaky of a background. These are really implements, conduits, you might say, between this world and the next. And that is the spirit of, pun intended, <laughs> of the history and the narrative in which we must look at the Ouija board and where it fits into a period of American history because the Ouija board itself it's an outcome it's a natural logical progression of an item born out of a desire of this large group of people in the mid 19th century to commune with the spirit world and that movement is called spiritualism so once again we're going to take a look at the spiritualism movement of the 19th century in America. And we've mentioned this before, but we're going to drill down a little bit more on uh, its place in American history and who were the people involved and how did this family board game that a lot of us grew up with, how was that a result of the spiritualism movement? Well, spiritualism, the movement that centered around attempting to communicate with the spirit world, was already popular in Europe and for many years prior, I believe. But it had become a craze in America and had reached a peak in 1848 when the Fox Sisters of upstate New York became a national sensation. But before we continue, I want us to keep in mind, though, that the Fox Sisters didn't really establish or were considered the founders of spiritualism in the U.S., although they are central characters and and really kicked off, perhaps, the craze that it became in the mid-century there. They were good publicity for it, essentially. Right. And and one of the first uh, celebrities, you could say, of the spiritualism movement. But I just wanted to stress, at least from my research, that, of course, since the beginning of time, people have been trying to contact dead loved ones and commune with this greater... Existential, metaphysical existence beyond us. We saw that with Gobekli Tepe. Obviously, people were interested enough that they gave, they totally radically changed their lifestyle of hunting and gathering to commune with something that was spiritual, something from beyond that they thought was important. Let's become farmers and uh, raise grains just because it's so important for us to build this temple. We need this. So all throughout time, like I said, people didn't start becoming uh, spiritual or look to it or try to communicate with the the great beyond prior to the 1850s. But really, this became a movement that had uh, a little bit of structure to it, although not so solid that you could say it's an exact denomination. But yes, they were the ones, to, I think, f- to first majorly sensationalize the movement in the papers. So I want to read a little something here. And this is uh, according to the history of the spiritualist camp called the Chesterfield Camp in Chesterfield, Indiana, mm. and their booklet of their history called Chesterfield Lives 1886 to 1986, Our First Hundred Years. And the movement's description of its early years starts off with this passage in the book. So I'll just read this here. Spiritualism was already in the air in 1886. That was the founding year of the, uh, the Chesterfield camp. The fires lit by Andrew Jackson Davis, the revolutionary Poughkeepsie Seer and acknowledged father of modern spiritualism in the United States had spread westward. Entire families became adherents of spiritualism and established religious groups contributed not only converts, but also that amount of philosophy deemed acceptable by the far ranging but very narrow spiritualism of the day. The national vogue for church camp meetings sprang from the popular grove meetings of the Quaker Association. Spiritualism owes a vast debt of thanks to both the Quakers and the Shakers, who, from at least 1800, had been experiencing the wrappings, the visions, and the trances. And in 1830, a major spiritual contract was recorded that told of an upcoming, quote-unquote, spiritual crisis when a worldwide outpouring of spiritual gifts would occur, together with the extraordinary discovery of material wealth. The date set forth was 1848, the date of both the Rochester wrappings via the Fox Sisters and the discovery of gold at Sutter's Mill in California. After the Civil War, camp meetings proper were being held regularly by spiritualists, the very first being held at Pierpont Grove, Malden, Massachusetts, in 1860. By the early 1880s, at least 17 camps had sprung up all over the nation. I looked
3: into this as well, and of course, a bunch of them are not only in Indiana but Ohio, creepiest state in the country.
2: <laughs> Stop pestering Ohio! I love with it. Your I love preconceived it. Preconceived
3: notions. Hey, everyone that I know from Ohio is proud of its weirdness. But anyway, hey, they I'm, had the, they uh, had the camps there. The Midwest. They yeah. had the camps there. Yeah, there. they oh, had yeah. some.
2: Uh, Indiana had some, as we'll see. I'll describe a little bit about myself visiting one of those. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that passage there from the the booklet that I got called uh, Chesterfield Lives, their first 100 years uh, documented to 1986, I liked it because that's at least this camp's point of view as who was the founder of modern spiritualism, and it's the Poughkeepsie Seer, Andrew Jackson Davis. So I didn't do much studying on him, but I'd, I'd love to know his story. But now let's look at the celebrities of the spiritualism movement, the first ones on the scene in 1848, the Fox sisters. What about those Fox sisters? Well, we've mentioned the Fox sisters in previous episodes, and their story, it could be an episode or two of their own. But here's just a brief overview of uh, generally who they were. Leah, Margareta, or Maggie, and Catherine, or Kate, Fox, were three sisters, the two younger ones living with their parents in a hamlet called Hydesville which was, at the time, part of Arcadia Township in Wayne County, New York. Now, around the end of March in 1848, Margareta, age 14 at the time, and Catherine, age 10, had convinced their mother, older sister Leah, and some neighbors and others that they were able to communicate with a spirit, or spirits, through rapping. Uh, No, not a musical style there. This is communicating by a series of knocks here, and it could be on the floor or or on the walls or the ceiling. You're not, yeah, you can't really tell where it's coming from, right? If it's working right. Yeah, it, it was put forth, I think, from different locations, and no one's very clear as to what's happening here, except we're going to hear an explanation from one of the sisters in a bit. But generally, uh, people just heard rapping, and in that ventriloquism kind of way, and we did talk about this with, uh, remember the Bell Witch? Oh, yeah where all kinds of strange scratching, clawing, rapping noises, well, this is kind of part of that, that phenomenon, and it still continues to this day in in paranormal investigations. Uh, Knock, knock, ghost. People still look for and communicate with the knocking and the rapping. Well, these two younger Fox sisters, they turned it into a sensation, where now people were looking and paying attention to how many knocks were happening in response to certain questions. So later on, they devised a code, One rap or knock for yes, later would be three knocks for yes, or a certain number of raps or knocks to indicate a a letter of the alphabet or a number. So their mother actually believed that they were indeed genuinely communicating with the spirit world, thinking the girls were just too young to be capable of a hoax. Soon the neighbors, the townsfolk, were also believing in the girls' mediumship, and later the supposed spirit was claimed to be that of a peddler named Charles Rosna. And the story was that he was murdered in the house five years earlier and buried in the cellar, although no Charles Rosna was ever identified as being a real person or having gone missing. However, the house the Fox family lived in did have a reputation for being haunted, although the family never took much notice of that until the girls started their performance. So that's why I love this rich history here. It's, and, and I contend some of this could have been fake and some of it could have been real. A hoax done in a really haunted place. Uh, well, their older sister, Leah, she was much older at the time. Well, she then became a manager of sorts for the younger two, and they did some touring. They they did their performances of their rapping spirit communication during stage seances, and all three had successful careers as mediums for decades afterwards. That is until in 1888, when Margaretta Fox spilled the beans, <laughs> And that year, Margareta publicly confessed to faking the spirit wrappings and the communications, and she showed how it was done to the public. Mm. So Margareta, or Maggie, described how the trick on their mom first got started. And and, and this information in the previous uh, just comes from the Wikipedia entry here. Quote from Margareta. When we went to bed at night, we used to tie an apple to a string and move the string up and down, causing the apple to bump on the floor, or we would drop the apple on the floor, making a strange noise every time it would rebound. Mother listened to this for a time. She would not understand it and did not suspect us as being capable of a trick because we were so young.
3: Yeah, and I guess later on, I actually found this when we were looking into this a little bit. This is from... A.B. Davenport's Death Blow to Spiritualism on page 76. This was, uh, I think, published in 1888. Uh, mm-hmm. This is another quote from Margarita. Yeah. That I have been chiefly instrumental in perpetrating the fraud of spiritualism upon a too-confiding public, most of you doubtless know. The greatest sorrow in my life has been that this is true, and though it has come late in my day, I am now prepared to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, so help me God." <laughs> I am here tonight as one of the founders of spiritualism to denounce it as an absolute falsehood from beginning to end, as the flimsiest of superstitions, the most wicked blasphemy known to the world. Ouch. And Katie Fox-Jenkin also said, I regard spiritualism as one of the greatest curses that the world has ever known, end quote. Oh, dear. Now, it's interesting here, Margareta herself is calling herself a founder But uh, our research is not indicating that they're founders of spiritualism. They just are participants in perpetrating this fraud, if you
2: believe what they said they
3: did, of of the spirit wrapping and that sort of thing.
2: (laughs) Well, look, to them, I could see them as maybe spearheading the movement or creating the spark that really got it going, that kicked it all up. But as we, we just said previously, though, it wasn't like they started an organized... Religion of sorts, you know, what I'm saying it wasn't a sect, it wasn't, uh, it was kind of loosely networked. And there were these camps that had their own origins and uh, their own histories within this umbrella of general spiritualism, which is communicating with the other side metaphysics. But it's not like uh, they decided, you know, they're going to come up with a manifesto and they're going to lead everything and they, they have uh, franchises that they're uh, distributing throughout the country. It didn't seem that way to me, but they certainly are probably the two most popular and sensationalized adherents of this movement. But I got to say, big mistake. It's kind of like that TikTok video you wished you hadn't released because you can't take it back. Somebody's recorded it already, (laughs) and you're going to be held to it for the rest of your life. And I'm sure that was the regret that they had when like, yeah, you know what, Maggie? Maybe we shouldn't have said that because that was kind of our uh, livelihood. Because the next year in 1889, Margareta tried to take back her confession, but by then it was too late. With their careers and reputations as genuine mediums destroyed, Within five years' time, all three sisters would be dead, with Margareta and Kate dying completely ruined and broke. But the exposure of the Fox sisters as frauds did little to dampen the sensation of the spiritualist movement from that point forward and beyond the turn of the 20th century. So the movement has already taken off, and people were having their own experiences. So just because these sisters may have uh, spilled the beans, as I said, it didn't dampen people's enthusiasm and quest for answers. From a spirit world. Well, Brandon's going to be talking about this in a little bit, but to, just to give you a brief overview of it, spiritualism
3: actually peaked in the second half of the 19th century with those stories in the sensationalist national press of the Fox sisters that we just talked about and other mediums conducting seances and spirit communications. Millions of people across the country were now aware of the movement, and many were practicing spirit communication in their own homes. It was an activity that was seen as acceptable within American Christian dogma, and that's critical to this, because it's not going to make the inroads right. into everyone's homes if it, if it doesn't work with Christianity. And so right. it, it didn't have that stigma that it later came to have in the latter half of the 20th century. So there wasn't much shame then in contacting the spirits of the deceased, and families could think of it as a decent hobby or pastime in practicing automatic writing, which is where you might see someone welcoming a spirit into themselves to communicate as they constantly move a pencil over paper and without consciously thinking about it, and then writing down any words or letters that come to them in a sort of trance, or having seances in their parlors, or hosting table-turning parties where people would all place their hands on a small table. We're going to learn about that tonight, too. And then they would invite a spirit to move the table and then enjoy a surprise and amazement as the table (laughs) mysteriously began to jostle and shake, or in some cases, levitate. And of course, like the Ouija planchette, no one claimed to be doing the rattling or the moving.
2: Yeah, that's important. You can't really be like, yeah, I was doing that. Like, yeah, that was man. me. It was all me, guys. Um, so <laughs> Stop um, it. No, but that was the, that's the point, is that it was seen as a wholesome activity. Like, nobody batted an eye. Like, oh, that's cool. And then uh, you could do that and then still go to church and be respectable. It wasn't like, they're trying to summon the devil. It's just It was an acceptable pastime of the day.
3: Yeah, and it was also a welcome distraction from the harsh life uh, at at that time. It it gave people the hope of an afterlife, especially in an era when it was common for disease epidemics (laughs) to ravage a community uh, like typhus, Mm. cholera, tuberculosis, and one we've all been hearing about lately, the Spanish flu in 1918. These diseases and other dangers also hit children especially hard, and their mothers uh, could die in childbirth. Average life expectancy was 50 years old or less in the era, and uh, that's if uh, one wasn't killed by accident or disease. Then, of course, there was the American Civil War from 1861 to 65, World War I from 1914 to 1918. And uh, quite often, there's not a whole lot of closure for families that lost their loved ones to these wars, many of them going off to fight with a lack of accounting or reporting. All they knew was their men went away and never came back. And families wanted a way to speak with their departed loved ones at least one more time. And in fact, Abraham Lincoln's wife, Mary Todd Lincoln, had conducted seances in the White House after their son William, or Willie, Wallace Lincoln, died in 1862 at age 11, possibly from typhoid. Uh so even President Lincoln and First Lady Mary Todd had a connection to supernatural communication and th- that shows how acceptable it was back then.
2: Yeah, it wasn't a big deal. Uh I, I'm sure it was uh, that in itself might be uh, a little sensational, maybe raise an eyebrow or two, but wasn't seen as uh anything that untoward, but uh, one of these days we got to cover Lincoln's connection to the supernatural, his prophetic dreams and and uh, some odd things that yeah, happened in his life. There was it's a lot going on there. There was a lot going on there um
3: Well, going back to uh, Robert Murch, who was mentioned in the Smithsonian article that we brought up at the top of the show, this sums up the attitude of many Americans regarding contacting the dead through spiritualism at the time versus how many of us feel about it now. Quote, communicating with the dead was common. It wasn't seen as bizarre or weird. It's hard to imagine that now. We look at that and we think, uh, why are you opening the gates of hell? End quote.
2: So, (laughs) right, because that happens every time. That happens every time you use a Ouija board. But no, it doesn't. Well, it does when you play Monopoly.
3: Well, we're going to get back to Brandon now, who is going to talk to us a little bit about the origins of the planchette and the birth of spirit communication. He's also going to talk about the Fox sisters, uh, spirit rapping, which uh, we just touched on, and Idiomoto response. Uh, Idiomoto response is a fascinating, what you said, mundane explanation for what's happening. Um, I'll read a little bit on that from the Wikipedia page. Uh, the idiomotor phenomenon is a psychological phenomenon wherein a subject makes motions unconsciously. So this is uh, meant to describe like when you hold a pendulum and it starts swinging a certain way, or perhaps a dowsing rod or something else, if that's what you uh, want to believe is happening in that situation. Even though people with dowsing rods do seem to be uncanny at finding...
2: Wells with water in them and that sort of thing, but right, and and that's the point we'll make with the Ouija board later. Is that if you are getting this information from your own subconscious, which again I I think is pretty interesting, if you actually have results with it, you find lost treasure water underground, use a pendulum and find something on a map that turns out to be true. How is that happening? Is that a psychic connection? Yeah, maybe
3: maybe the information is coming through you, but still, where is it coming from before that? Right. Another thing we're going to touch on here in this next segment is talking about the idea of these shared experiences among people participating in these activities versus contrived ones, um, which were also perpetrated on folks where people were pretending to make things happen. There's a whole line of reasoning why that was going on, too. So uh, let's go back to Brandon. Right. So these days, planchettes and talking boards go hand in hand. But in reality, I, I'm, from what I'm understanding, is the planchette preceded the talking board, right?
1: By many decades, yes, yeah, several decades.
3: Right, by many decades. And it was developed out of a necessity to get something more efficient going in these spirit communication sessions. So I was wondering if maybe you could uh, teach our audience a little bit about the origins of the planchette and how it evolved, and then we'll get to where it got connected with the talking board.
1: So spirit communication really has its birth in this country. And I usually hesitate to really start with the Fox sisters because it's just like where every book on the subject starts. It's like chapter one, Hydesville, New York, but it really is where the story begins. And it's important to understand what form that spirit communication took with these young women and the mediums that followed in their wake, because from that, everything else will evolve. And the way they did it will lead to attempted improvements. And so what you have is March 31st, 1848, Kate and Maggie Fox, two young teenagers, are in this cottage in Hydesville, New York, not far outside of Rochester. And for a couple of weeks, the family there had been experiencing a very creepy, very spooky what we would term a poltergeist-like activity, so these strange knockings and rappings throughout the house on the walls, ceilings, windows, floors, and doors. And on that night, after a couple of weeks of frightening evenings with these strange noises, it said the younger sister, Kate, leapt upon her bed and commanded these noises to repeat after her. It will be a later sort of fiction added to the story that she called the spirits Mr. Splitfoot, uh, which is something that gets repeated in a lot of, of modern academia, which is unfortunately not true to the original version of the story. But she is said to have sort of leapt up on her bed, snapped her finger a number of times, and the noises, the believed to be spirits, responded in kind. And that's really marked as the moment where spiritualists recognize that the veil between worlds was breached and the living were then establishing communication with the spirits of the dead and so there's a lot of changes culturally going on that keep this story from being a localized event the spread of the telegraph for instance really makes news of this spread and in a sense go viral so rather than staying this little local curiosity it goes nationwide. And the women are promoted, essentially, and they go on tour. and They begin giving these demonstrations in urban areas. And everywhere they go, mediumship spreads. Particularly young women begin developing their gifts overnight. Now, it's important to note that Due to personal grievances and and circumstances later in their lives, the Fox sisters will actually come forward and and go public and reveal that they were actually cracking their toe knuckles and knee joints to produce these noises under their petticoat. But then they would also turn around and recant this confession uh, not long afterward. And so... Regardless of what was happening, the belief was that the veil between worlds had been breached. We could now communicate with the dead. And in the earliest days, you needed a medium, literally a person in between the worlds of the living and the dead to act as the go-between of this communication. And these strange noises would wrap out in the presence of a rapping medium. And you could communicate in a number of ways. You could binary, positive and negative. Answer. It would refine into once for yes, twice for no. It was different a little earlier on, but a simple yes, no code, positive, affirmative, uh, or or negative, versus something called alphabet calling, where you would literally call out the alphabet and wait for a letter to be indicated, and then you could spell out words, phrases, and sentences from there. That refinement is going to lead to poetry and novels being produced pretty early on in the history of this. And so your earliest seances, you would uh, be attended by a medium. You would go into the seance chamber. You would often sing some hymns to get the atmosphere going. The lights might be dim, but not quite always in a dark room. Uh, that's sort of a, a whole other story as to, as to why we now associate seances with black lit rooms. The medium would be presented, would sit. After a few minutes of calm, quiet, the noises would begin to sound out the sitters could ask questions of the medium, uh, receive either yes or no answers to their questions or have phrases and sentences spelled out. And that was spirit communication in the earliest days. But things begin to happen in the seance chamber that are going to lead to further refinements. Furniture will will begin to mysteriously move, for instance. And it, it starts off first as That chair moved over there. It must have been the spirits or that piano made noises on its own. It must have been the spirits. The table shifted. This thing fell over. Weird, again, what we would associate with like poltergeist activity. But soon sitters by the early 1850s begin to discover if they place their hands on top of the table, it too will begin to move mysteriously under their hands in a way that felt like they were not contributing to the cooperative movement of the table. And this is gonna be the earliest recognitions of what we now call the ideomotor response. And that's sort of unconscious muscular movement where sitters contributing either to these table movements or to the modern conception, the movement of the planchette on the Ouija board, where it moves in a way that you feel like you are not contributing. It feels like you are not helping push this thing and it's moving mysteriously on its own. And the earliest observances of this phenomenon is with table tipping. And again, this is early 1850s, about five years into the movement, the news of this will then spread. And table tipping experiments and phenomenon will really by 1853 kind of go worldwide. We've actually traced where the news of this American phenomenon jumps the Atlantic into Germany and spreads from Germany into Paris. And by the summer of 1853s, I I call it the summer of talking tables because it is the hip parlor entertainment of the year. And everyone in the world is just agog at, at this new phenomenon and experiencing it for themselves.
3: Do you think it has origins in actual unexplainable phenomena? Or do you think it started out, uh, you know, there's been examples of people that had contraptions that allowed them to pick up the table like a magician would do in an illusion. Where do you feel the line is between actual events and uh, more uh, contrived events and the explosion of the table tipping phenomena?
1: As far as the split between shared experience and contrived experience, throughout the history of spiritualism, we see lots of contrived experiences. Believers would argue otherwise. Skeptics could argue it was a contrived experience from the very beginning with the Fox sisters' admission of what they were doing to produce these spirit raps. It was certainly important for me as a historian and researcher to have a proper, creepy, talking board experience. It's a very good demonstration of how those that are prone to belief could certainly have the scales tipped further in that direction with that experience because it is very uncanny to place your fingers lightly on top of that planchette and feel it move as if unassisted. And it's a very real effect. We have scientific explanations for it. We know what it is. We know it's unconscious muscular movement. So you aren't aware of your minuscule movements that are contributing to it. But to me, it's also no less fantastic that a group of people can get together, place their fingertips on the planchette and produce a coherent narrative because you know, anything other than gibberish, you figure you've got up to four people with their fingers on this board and it's going to spell out anything other than just G-H-X-I-Z-H-K, you know, it just, you can ask questions and get cohesive answers and cohesive narratives. And to me, that's really no less miraculous, even if we're able to explain it scientifically, that our brains fill in the gaps in that very cooperative way.
2: When an answer comes back, and it's one of those wow moments we always hear about with the Ouija board, it's like somebody in the group says, what was the nickname my great grandmother had for me? And no one else at the table should know that. And that person there probably hasn't heard that, you know, since their childhood. And it comes back correctly. Is
1: that just coincidence in your in
2: your belief?
1: Well, no, it's, you know, that person knows the answer and is contributing toward it. Right. They just don't perceive that they're contributing toward it.
2: Right. So then, of course, that leads to the question, what about things that are predicted that happen to come true that are so mind-blowing that it seems like a very unlikely coincidence?
3: We had a listener send in a story about an experience where things were being identified that were hidden in drawers or in the closet and that sort of thing.
2: Does it tap into actual psi processes or uh, something psychic within the people sitting there? Or do you believe that it actually comes from outside a person, that it is a consciousness that is beyond our human bodies, that is informing us sometimes.
1: There could be coincidence involved. And I think having that personal experience was important to my research to give that experience. Trust me, you read this stuff in historical records, you'll read an account of a seance, and it's, you know, 1856 and you know these miraculous events you know it could not have known this and i had this doctor was in the audience and he attested to this and you know you read these fantastic accounts and i mean fantastic as in fantasy not fantastic as in hey they're great although they're that yeah. too but once you experience it for yourself it's harder to discount that experience particularly a shared experience in that regard you know but at the same time there are so many aspects of this one that i'm often reminded of is the magician that can just grab somebody by the arm and walk that person through a Victorian mansion and find the object they hid. And I don't know if you're familiar with this phenomenon, but it's, it's muscle reading. That's sort of a related phenomenon. And so you know, you think, well, that's just miraculous that so that magician was able to grab that person by their arm and they just walked right to that drawer where those scissors were hidden or whatever the case may be. But
2: there's an explanation for it. Sometimes it seems that there's a little bit of experience there or talent or something that's really uncanny going on. And then they want to further that with making it more outlandish or demonstrating it because they want people to believe them. And there's the whole range where people like they don't need people to believe them. They just do their thing. And it's really uh, mysterious and uncanny and mystical. And then there's people who are just totally faking it. Where do you think the Fox sisters land in that scale?
1: I have always felt that the Fox sisters, like many internet celebrities nowadays, fell into a living that they never anticipated. It was a practical joke. They were playing on their parents. It got out of hand. They were too young to know how to get out of it. And before you know it, they're being carted around the country and going on tours as to demonstrate this funky little talent they had of cracking their toe knuckles, you know, and trying not to get caught. Talking to the Dead by Barbara Weisberg is a fantastic account of the Fox sisters and their exploits. And for that reason, I was reading that stuff. I've always been of the opinion they just kind of got in over their heads. But, hey, they made a fantastic career out of it. Had they not drank it away, they would have died very wealthy and and well-known. But, you know, they had a lot of personal problems in their lives, too, you know, in part because of this celebrity and fame. Their older sister, Leah Fox, who was much older than them, they were young teens, I believe she had kids of her own at that point. Being older, she was able to grasp the opportunity and benefit more from it and really kind of exploited them. They would come to resent her later in life. I guess she sort of took on the role of their manager and and frankly kind of exploited them a little bit.
2: After Maggie spilt the beans uh, and then tried to recant a, a year later, things seemed to really go downhill. Their reputation is ruined. So you're you're kind of saying that whatever money that they had made in that career, which spanned a couple of decades, they basically drank that away and ended up destitute.
1: Yeah, they did. And even their confession and recanting of it, certainly it was scandalous for the time. It didn't help spiritualism. Spiritualism was already going, particularly in the 1870s, was going through a schism of physical mediumship versus more old-fashioned mediumship.
3: Well, there's some familiar ground here of if the Fox sisters were hoaxing, as they confessed to be doing. And honestly, it, it seems pretty believable that they were because they were real specific about how they did it <laughs> yeah, well, um, sure. and, sh- and demonstrating it. That idea of a hoax getting out of hand, that's something that we've come across before. Right. And also, we've come across before the idea that something real happened once or twice, and then the people that it happened to in an effort to gain attention began to hoax it themselves to continue it. And then that is where it went crazy. And I think there's cases like that. We talked about that with Ronnie in the Delphus Ring, where it seemed very much like the first story, what he saw, what he experienced, everything was really real. But then there was a second story that seemed a little more suspect. And it's like, no, but you gotta believe me. You're getting to this point, whether it's a desire to be believed or whether it's an appreciation of the attention. But in this case, these girls were young And uh, they wanted to pull this off. And uh, to me, if you drill down on this even further, and you can't do this anymore because this is ancient history, really, and it predates uh, a lot of record keeping and who knows what's going on with the family internally. But my guess would be that the older sister who was marketing them probably knew pretty early on that they were pretending, but if the world's <laughs> yeah. buying it for a buck fifty uh, to come in and look at it or whatever, then that's what they're right. going to do in that case. You know,
2: you can look at it as uh, stage entertainment, stage magic of sorts. But I see a lot of parallels also, as we mentioned earlier, with the Bell Witch case. Yeah, yeah, just a couple of decades earlier, the eighteen thirties, I, I think, uh, a little and a little bit before, where strange things were happening, but and a lot of people were saying. Oh, look, it's just an 11 year old girl or a, a young girl trying to get some attention and it gets out of hand and uh, she's able to use ventriloquism tricks and fool people. It's like it's a little bit beyond that. Yeah. There were other witnesses and other strange, unexplainable things that were happening that go far beyond just a, a bobbing an apple on the floor. You know, it's yeah. a good point. Cranking your knuckles or your toes. And getting the table to shake, there was a lot more going on, and and there's other connections to uh, Jeff the Talking Mongoose. yeah, where people were saying like, oh, that's just people throwing their voice. Well, I follow him on Twitter, kids? yeah. Um, are we? Yes, I should say, I should right say Astonishing a- Al follows him on Twitter. Uh, exactly. Yeah. Yes, we to uh, just give ourselves a, another degree of separation from a mystical d- demonic mongoose spirit. Uh, <laughs> But the idea is that, yeah, that has come up throughout history quite a bit, where something kind of gets out of hand. Uh, a lot of people think the Enfield Poltergeist case was young girls, uh, you know, and then there's some evidence that uh, some of that was faked. But uh, you have to look at the whole picture here. And with the Fox sisters, it's like, well, it's pretty contained with just the rapping and the shaking and the rattling. Right. I don't think it extended beyond that. There was now, not, not disembodied
3: that voices. House. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, where an adults getting tricked. Well, in this next segment with uh, Brandon, we're going to come back and we're going to talk a little bit about a fork in the road between the approaches, the different approaches that we're developing to spirit communication and spiritualism itself having to decide what's it going to adopt because this is a relatively new dogma, for lack of a better word. It's like, which way are we going here? We, what what kind of communication are we saying makes sense and what kind are we saying doesn't? You're also going to hear an interesting bit about the Coons spirit room, which was this room... That was built by his family that uh, was a, able, you were able to have heightened activity in it. It was a very special room, apparently. So that's pretty fascinating. And the spirit trumpet, which I had never heard of, but you seemed like super familiar with when we got to that point in the
2: interview here. <laughs> I wish I had one. And I tried no, to pretend like that? I knew what it was. Yeah. Well, the, no, but the idea though is that it's pretty iconic. And I just remember seeing, especially with Houdini blowing the lid off a lot of these, uh, and he would show how he could. You know, with his bare feet, ring a bell that was gripped with his toes under the table. Like, there you go. There's a disembodied bell noise. And, or how he'd get the trumpet to shake and levitate. So it's a very iconic prop with seances of that era.
1: Let me talk a little bit about where that even comes from. I mentioned earlier how the dark seance will kind of take over, but that already has caused a schism in the church and the church itself failed to unify. You have all these cells of spiritualists and local communities that have their own beliefs. They have the one overriding belief that you're able to communicate with the dead, but they don't really get their dogma straight. And so there are attempts. The only real surviving attempt is going to be the National Spiritualist Association of Churches, the NSAC, which is still in existence and headquartered at at Lilydale in New York and for whom I have lectured on these historical topics at their annual convocation. But fail to really unify behind a cohesive catechism, as it were, and for that reason, are unable to weather the controversy. And one of the huge splits takes us back to the age of table tipping where, and and the birth of spirit trumpets, which I should grab, (laughs) specimen, and where we get dark seances from. Planchettes, the earliest talking boards, and spirit trumpets all are birthed out of the table tipping phenomenon all at the same time. And so it's like, suddenly I have to like, let's put a pin in that and talk (laughs) about voice channeling. One of the sort of consequences of table tipping phenomenon is going to be very important to some events that are going to happen in Athens County, Ohio. In 1852 or so, the family of famous medium, now famous medium, Jonathan Coons, experiences a great loss. Their eldest daughter passes away. She's twelve or thirteen years old. Felinia Coons. She has a, a brother who's a, approximately her her age. They suffer this loss, and Jonathan Coons was was kind of an avowed atheist and kind of a local farmer troublemaker. You know, and it didn't really subscribe to any particular faith. And because of that, several different denominations, the pastors refused to say the ceremony for his daughter's funeral. Incensed at this rejection, he begins to sort of rail against the local congregations, and he really puts organized religion in his sights. And that is going to put spiritualism now experiencing this new table tipping phenomenon in his sights. And he travels uh, to a nearby town in Ohio and sits with a spirit medium with the idea of debunking her. Instead, he receives messages that he is, in fact, the world's most powerful psychic medium. And uh, she gives him instructions on how to enhance this gift and how to hone his God-given gifts. And he goes home, he begins to practice automatic writing. And this is almost concurrent with the invention of the automatic writing planchette in Paris. But in its easiest form, he would hold a pencil He would go into a trance-like state and begin to produce writing in an unconscious manner. And so he begins to produce messages from the spirits in this regard, as well as through table-tipping seances, and is given the blueprint by the spirits for what he will then term his spiritual machine. And the conception of the spiritual machine is that it is a primitive battery that will charge the atmosphere of an enclosed space and for the first time allow spirits to manifest physically and so this is a brand new conception born on a dirt farm 72 miles away from the nearest railway station in Athens County Ohio in the middle of nowhere farm country and that site is still in the middle of nowhere no offense to my friends in Athens (laughs) County I lecture there regularly and so you have people, tens of thousands flock over the subsequent years to experience the phenomenon of the Kuhn spirit room, which is an entirely new and novel form of spirit communication, a different type of seance than wrapping mediumship, which was still in vogue and still popular. So Jonathan Coons receives these blueprints for this spiritual machine, a battery which will charge the room, which is then housed within this roughly... 14 by 17 foot log cabin with no windows, a single door, pitch black inside, three rows of pews, a small stage, a few chairs for the family and this machine. And the principal medium of the family is the son, the eldest son, Nim, who communicates also in a novel manner. He's going into a trance and doing what we call direct voice channeling, but he's channeling the spoken words of these spirits through a new device, which we now call the spirit trumpet. And here's a specimen here. Mm-hmm. His was about two feet long and sort of rough beaten tin. This is a later version, probably from the 30s or 40s. You can see it telescopic. <laughs> so, you know. Very cool. Wow. This is used in different manners throughout history. Houdini is gonna make hay exposing mediums that are using these yeah. spirit trumpets and mm-hmm. various uh Fraudulent means they're very light. They were very easy to manipulate at the seance table. And you can see this one has luminous tape on it. So in the darkness of the seance chamber, it would float around delivering messages, you know, ostensibly controlled by unseen hands.
2: I can understand it's just kind of an object that's, uh, as you said, easily manipulated, but did anybody ever claim that um, sound from the spirit world would come out of the trumpet? Did the act of it being a trumpet actually parlay into spirit communication?
1: It did. So there were competing uses of it. In the simplest circumstance, the trumpet would be used to transmit direct voice channelings from across the seance table directly to the ear of the sitter from the medium who is channeling the voice of your dear Aunt Edna. In more extreme forms, it is directly transmitting the voice of the spirits and amplifying the weak ectoplasmic voice of the spirits and floating of its own volition directly to you in the presence of the medium who the belief will come to be is exuding ectoplasmic appendages, which visibly or invisibly are able to manipulate objects at the Mm -hmm. seance table. And that really all gets its start right there in the coon spirit room. So you enter this dark room, there's this weird contraption, this tabletop contraption that is charging the atmosphere You are plunged into pitch darkness. Jonathan Coons is going to play his fiddle, Turkey in the Straw, some pre-Civil War era tunes. And then the large drums mounted to this tabletop device will sound (laughs) announcing the arrival of spirits. Jonathan Coons continues playing as instruments that are hung and spread across the room begin to take up, float over the sitter's heads and play independently of any mortal manipulation and play along in unison with him in the most heavenly dulcet terms if we're to believe the accounts of the time but more importantly the seance trumpet that had been introduced to the sitters would begin to float around and deliver these direct messages uncanny coincidental messages of a personal nature to the sitters and lastly glowing hands would begin to manifest and would shake sitters hands as well as pen automatic writings for them and give them these writings as souvenirs. And they were of a personal revelatory nature to the sitters there and left a lot of believers in its wake. And this is the birth of the dark seance, but this physical mediumship, physical phenomenon is going to give birth to a rise of things. One is going to be spirit photography, spirit photography, will come about in the 1860s as the conception that spirits are physically manifesting takes hold. And therefore, if they can physically manifest, then they can also be called on camera. So most famously, Mumler, uh, though he doesn't invent the process, certainly popularizes it. So ghosts begin to appear on film for the first time. And it also is going to really ring the death knell of spiritualism as a major religious force because as you introduce physical aspects into the seance room, you can debunk automatic writing if you want, even if it is a real phenomenon that modern psychologists use to tap into the subconscious. You can try to grab the ankles of the Fox sisters and prove they were you know, making noises under their petticoats. But it's much easier, particularly as flashlight and match technology begin to take light, as it were. No pun done, pun, definitely intended. <laughs> but as you can introduce instant light into the seance chamber, and particularly these now popular dark seances, it's easy to catch the mediums engaged in fraudulent activity. And this is really going to split spiritualism asunder in the 1870s with those that are saying, no, we got to keep to the old ways versus the very lucrative, sensational new form of seance introduced and popularized first by Jonathan Coons. First, spirit rooms themselves become popular. And then you have acts like the Davenport brothers who will take the conception of the spiritual chamber and condense it into a Portable, tourable spirit cabinet, which is where we get the term, and uh, they can load this thing up on, on a truck or a train and take their act on the road and promote this idea that in a darkened chamber, the spirits can manifest away from the light and produce physical effects. Now, it's going to be hugely important.
3: So that's a schism in a way between people who are wanting to get into profit-taking and the purists who want to go back to the right. old ways and the part of it that they felt was was working without the trickery.
1: Exactly. Even if that was trickery too, it was right. less sensational, less easily debunked trickery.
3: Interesting.
1: Again, if you're going to take the skeptics, right. root, of course, but you know believers would argue otherwise.
3: All right, again here, we're seeing these familiar themes and the the birth of legends and how they develop over time. Because like, when you look at the schism and or split in the philosophy on the experiences, people are either hosting or participating in these spirit communications. You see this fork in the road about methodology, profit, chicanery, and then, of course, the probably small portion of real believers who've been left on the side of the road as this thing just starts taking off and going in all these different directions. And I think what's fascinating here is when you think about there probably were genuine experiences mixed in with everything was going on. But it's now just drowning in this sea of charlatans and con artists who are getting busted because camera flashes are coming out or whatever. And people are, oh, but he's doing that with the string and the apple and the whatever. And so then, oh, well, every single thing that ever happened is fake. And you know what? Maybe it is. Maybe it's all categorically fake. But what about those ones? It's like you always say for us. What about that one story that you can't explain? And those are the stories out there. And that's why we do this yeah. show, you know? And additionally, in terms of developing the fraud of it all, I think a lot of times the fraud is rooted in the unexplainable event that happened first. Because you get the unexplainable event, word travels fast, lots of people are interested in it, and then other people unable to reproduce the unexplainable event. They fake it for profit. And then everyone says, oh, well, this one's been faked for profit so many times over and over again. The real one never happened and nothing is there. Just a little like really obtuse philosophy for me. (laughs) Apologize.
2: I love your obtuse (laughs) philosophies.
1: Hey there, everybody. This is Marco from Dallas, Texas, and I hope you enjoy listening to Astonishing Legends with Forrest and Scott because now it's time to get back to the show.
3: Well, I'll tell you what. I did not expect all this to be so fascinating. I didn't. I also didn't expect to find so much information about the evolution of all this, which obviously we wouldn't have without Brandon. So, Brandon, uh, thanks again for coming on the show. This next part that we're going to talk to him about is how the Ouija part of this. We're past the planchette now. Now we're getting into the Ouija portion of this story, which is fascinating. So uh, Forrest, maybe why don't you can do a little bit of a primer for our listener about how it became a game and, and the patent process with all of this.
2: Right. Well, now the cultural stage was set for the creation of something that was seen as a fun tool or, or maybe even a toy or game that was... Just an aid or tool for spirit communication, but one that could be used not just by psychic mediums, but by anybody who had one. Well, here's an interesting statement and thought that Brandon mentions in the Smithsonian article. Think about this spirit communication, it was fascinating and it provided chills and thrills, but it can also be time consuming and really boring without a better way to facilitate the messages from beyond. So imagine this imagine how you'd have to do this without a device. You'd have to get letters to spell out words merely by waiting for ghostly knocks. Think about it. You have to call out each letter of the alphabet, A, B, C, D, or a series of numbers, and you have to wait for a knock to happen, like, okay, B, (laughs) or you get to Z, and then you have to start all over again, reciting the entire alphabet. So you have to do that until you get a knock from the great beyond, and you have to keep repeating the process. Did you see that movie, the The Diving Bell and the Butterfly? Oh yeah, saw it when it came out. Yeah, yeah, uh, a um advertising exec, I think, wasn't he? I can't remember, but I I just remember the circumstances. I
3: remember that he, I think, felt like he had a convertible Jaguar or something, and yeah, he was driving oh, a very it. Cool and he car. just his he, he had like a a stroke or something, and just like pulled over to the side of the road, and, right. and was just never right again. Yeah. Or an aneurysm. It was an aneurysm. I'm sorry.
2: Oh, I I see it as a massive stroke here. Oh, okay. uh, Or or one of the two. Okay. But basically, he had what is known as locked-in syndrome then. So he could only move his eye. And I believe, unfortunately, the other eye had to be removed. So that was it. That's the only thing he could move. But he was still very conscious, brain fully functioning inside. But he had to communicate by looking at a chart of the alphabet. And he dictated a whole book. Yeah, that he way. wrote a book. That's right. It's an amazing yeah. film. If you haven't
3: seen yeah. it, I, I think a lot of people probably don't know about it. The Diving Bell and the Butterfly. It's gorgeous. It's great. Too. Yeah. yeah. Really beautiful movie. Yeah.
2: Yeah, but that's the idea. And so very time consuming and for a family pastime, as Brandon Hodge says. Can get very boring. So, like all paranormal research, I mean, it, that's the thing. You got to remember when
3: you're on the TV and you see these ghost shows or whatever, they're cutting together five minutes of activity after you know eight hours of twenty five cameras trying to catch something, <laughs> right? Which is, of course, what I wrongly was. I was like, nothing's going to happen here at the Sally House. But um. <laughs>
2: <laughs> well, nothing at first. It's not like it. it you, you got slapped on the forehead. No, we've been there. You know we've been there in. at least twenty minutes. I think. <laughs> Oh, yeah, at least... No, we went through the whole tour, so we'd been there quite a while, I think. Yeah, Yeah, we'd already uh, seen everything. So, But here's the idea. It's a lot like fishing. Now, the good thing about fishing is that you're enjoying the outdoor setting. It's a nice pastime whether you're catching something or not. But imagine if you're just sitting around a table in your parlor in the mid-19th century and not much is happening, not hearing any knocks. It gets really boring. And think about this. By 1861, Samuel Morse and Alfred Vail's electrical telegraph system had connected the East Coast of the United States with the West Coast. And by the late 1800s, average people were becoming familiar with the telephone. So if you could talk to other people over great distances, why couldn't we figure out a way to communicate with spirits that was also
3: just as easy and fast? You know what I love about this, that, you know, you wrote this into your part of the outline here, and I hadn't seen it until just now. I independently constructed an almost identical thought in another section (laughs) that you haven't seen But it was the same idea. And because the idea that I was talking about was how this thing was born of trying to create technology that could enhance this connection. And at the time, yeah, everyone's learning, oh, look, these invisible forces that we don't really understand are allowing us to communicate over long distances. Why can't we communicate with the dead? Because they just went to the same place the electricity comes from
2: somewhere else. That's very fascinating. And of course, I found this sentiment also, this statement and an idea in the Smithsonian article. But the idea is that it's about people's expectations around this time. As you said, it's like this unseen force, uh, electricity, is letting us communicate with a telegraph, with a telephone over very long distances. But what I find interesting and in what you just brought up is that it's about people's perception of, of the great beyond, where people go after they die as being a long, long ways away. Right. However, they might be right with you in the same room. Conceptually, we have to think of them as like, no, no, we've, they've crossed the great chasm, the river Sticks. They're so far away that we'll never see them. However, they're able to visit. So in one sense, it's like cognitive dissonance. Right. They're, they're a long ways away, but they're also sitting in your face. You just can't see them. And you're able to talk to them. So we have to bridge that gap. And what I'm saying about people's expectations is by this time, it's like, There should be a device that lets us do this that's a lot more fun and fast, and necessity is the mother of invention, as they say. So also with this backdrop of a product showing up at the right time was the use of them by larger groups of people. And as we said before, spiritualist camps were also becoming popular in places like Ohio and and Indiana, like with the Chesterfield Spiritualist Camp. In Chesterfield, Indiana, and also the founding of camps like Lilydale and Cane Ridge and, and these spiritualist enclaves. And uh, I actually got to visit the Chesterfield Spiritualist Camp uh, in my latest Ghost Hunting Midwest adventure yes. with Jill and Roger Pingleton. And so Roger wanted us to experience this as it was on our way. And I'm glad he did. And that's where I got the booklet he he let me borrow. But it was interesting. You had a question about what these were like. Yeah. This place is still around, of course. It's a little bit run down because it's hard to get funds to keep up the place. It's like it requires a lot of gardening. It's a big campus. There are a lot of small installations that, uh, that have been built with donations, little chapels. There are still houses there that are still being maintained and lived in. And I believe you can apply if, if you have some kind of endeavor that involves the metaphysical. Uh, you're a spiritual medium. A psychic medium. You do some kind of work there. You can apply to live there and uh, and take care of the house. And so there's people living in there. Now, of course, this was we were all being very uh, conscious and quarantine minded about COVID, so we weren't knocking on people's doors. But we could walk around, and there weren't very many people walking around. But you could see people were living there, mm. and it was kind of cool. So there's a section of houses. There's a nice park kind of the central setting where there's um, these concrete small tables. Of one-on-one seats right across from one or the other, and Roger said that's where mediums and and maybe there's uh, thirty or forty of them in the kind of the central part of the park where people could practice giving readings to each other, or people that were visiting the spiritualist camp. You can come get a reading in, in a group setting. No, yeah, so it's like going to a cosmetology school and getting <laughs> you can go and test get... makeup exactly. Yeah. So it's very interesting. The other side thing that uh, uh, Roger wanted to show us that, unfortunately, the auditorium where these paintings are housed was closed. In there are some spirit paintings. Now, this ties in with the history of Ouija and the planchette and spirit communication devices, because it's also called spiritualist art. Art derived or originating from somewhere beyond. And the paintings that are housed there that we get, didn't get to see are by the Bangs sisters, B-A-N-G-S, and the rest is sisters, like Fox sisters. But uh, Scott, I told Scott this story, and you were kind of fascinated, and we needed to dig into this. And again, this could be another episode. But apparently, they would have blank canvases on stage in a, a demonstration fashion, and they would conjure the images... Onto the canvas. Yes, of deceased family members of people in the audience. Yeah. I guess there was a mist of some kind, maybe some ectoplasm. The next thing you knew, these images would appear in the likenesses of departed family members. Hmm. And of course people would be freaked out. And if you had to fake that, the people in the audience would have to be in on it, providing an image somehow. So of course people have tried to debunk that. I don't personally know whether it was a hoax or not, but it's fascinating. And the pictures are kind of weirdly creepy, cool. So that's there. But anyway, yeah, so I did get to uh, visit Camp Chesterfield. That started in 1886. Around that same time Camp Chesterfield was established, there was a report from the newly formed Associated Press about spiritualist camps in Ohio using a talking board or a spirit board. Basically the same thing as uh, the, as we know as the modern-day Ouija board. And uh, this device used a planchette to point to letters and numbers on a board that would quickly and easily spell out words from the ethers. So guess what? This gave Charles Kennard of Baltimore, Maryland, a savvy businessman, more than a spiritualist, an idea to mass market a board game of sorts based on this idea that would satisfy this already well-established craze for talking to dead people in an easier way and making a bundle doing it. And so the Kennard Novelty Company was established by Charles in 1890 along with attorney Elijah Bond, a surveyor named Colonel Washington Bowie. And with these gentlemen, this made up a total of five initial investors. And the Kennard Company would become the first manufacturers of the Ouija board.
1: So, so many of these items get their start as an outgrowth of table tipping phenomenon. So there are ways to expedite mediumship communications. Okay. So you can have your rapping mediums and you did. Very early on, automatic writing, direct automatic writing takes hold where the medium would go into a trance, write out a message with a pen in hand. And then also direct voice channeling is really the most direct manner where I would go into a trance and literally communicate in a possessive like trance, communicate words from the spirits. For those absent those talents or uh training, and particularly for those people at home That were enamored with investigations and experiments into table tipping phenomenon, where you didn't need a medium. You could just try it at the kitchen table. You have, particularly in Europe, a lot of experiments taking place with investigators that are looking for ways to refine those communications. And so that is where we get the earliest development of devices. And they all kind of happen at once in Berlin. You have Adolphus Wagner creates a tabletop device that harnesses directly. His idea is if you can move the table in this mysterious means, you could also manipulate this strange crisscross device he made. It was a tabletop device. It had these paddles where you would place your hands. And the movement, it had an indicator for the, the listeners who are familiar with early photocopy technology. They're called pantographs where you've got a pencil on one end, a pointer in the other, and everything you draw with one pencil would be enlarged with the other end of this crisscrossing wooden slat mechanism. Right. He basically developed one of these to where everyone placed their hands on it, and in these wooden slats crisscross, it was an indicator that pointed to an alphabet board that was placed on the mm. table. So you'd screw this thing in, and he applied the principles of the strange movements under the hand of the table tipping sitters to this device, which he called his psychograph. He has competition in a different way. Daniel Ornug develops what he calls his Emanulector. And this is a tabletop device, as many others of this area, that attempts to harness, directly harness, the strange movements of the table. And as it tips back and forth, This thing is screwed on the edge of the table. It's counterweighted. And as the table moves back and forth, a dial turns and points out letters and numbers. And here in America, we have Isaac Pease, who actually invents a a little cigar box tabletop device that has a dial on it and a counterweight. And again, directly harnessing those strange movements of the table and translating the movements directly to this alphabet dial so that as it moves back and forth, it's spelling out yes and no answers and or alphabetic communications through these dials. And so that's how our early, the things that will evolve into talking boards begin as tabletop alphabetic devices directly harnessing those strange movements that spiritualists are observing with table tipping. The planchette itself comes out of that exact same Use So the earliest planchette attempt is literally attaching a pencil to a small table, and the sitters spread out paper on the floor. This is in Paris, France, and they try to write, but it's too bulky, and the spirits get a little frustrated with this process. And we have, to, thankfully, to Alan Kardak, who preserved, he was gifted, the original séance notes, which he published in his medium's book, and spirit's book, in Paris. Unfortunately, this is a few years after the event, about three years after, and he also anonymizes all these different notes from the different seance groups. So unfortunately, he records the date and the instance, but he doesn't tell us whose house he was at. And we know there was about six different seance groups he was trafficking with. We think it was probably the Bowden family is my best guess, and I'm about 90% sure it was them, based on a bunch of different evidence. But essentially the spirits through table tipping say, no, no, they get frustrated with that first clumsy attempt. They say, no, 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 no. Go fetch the basket from the next room and place a pencil in the basket. And place your hands on top of the basket, and I'll be able to write more effectively that way. And we literally, I mean, that's not an exact quote, but that paraphrases quite nicely the instructions they're given. And that's what they do on the night of June 10th, 1853. So smack dab in the summer of talking tables, when this phenomenon is taking over the world, the automatic writing planchette is born in a basket. And by... 1854, presumably not long afterward, but our first instances that there is a cottage industry of these little boards or, you know, planchettes being produced is 1854. So we know within a year we have our first advertisements and our first newspaper mentions of these cabinet makers producing these devices for the seance trade in Paris. They will jump the channel over to England, and they will finally come to America in 1859 in the hands of two prominent American spiritualists, Robert Dale Owen and Dr. H.F. Gardner, who will deliver them to a Boston bookseller who I'm, again, about 90% sure is G.W. Cottrell, who will produce about 50 copies of these Parisian boards as the Boston Planchette and it languishes on his bookstore shelves and needs a bigger kick in the pants. So the planchette will sit there for a few more years before it itself will explode into a national craze.
3: This planchette, at this point, we are just talking about an automatic writing device. You need to put this on paper or whatever. There's no relationship to any kind of board at this point.
1: No, at this point, we are definitely talking about a direct automatic writing device.
3: What kind of uh, results... Can you expect from the, I mean, you're not going to look down and, are you going to look down and see a word or a sentence, or is it more drawings and you interpret the drawings or, because I know with, you know, automatic writing, sometimes that's just scribbling or something and the person's channeling a a verbal message, right? right? What kind of results do you expect from an automatic writing planchette?
1: Well, so automatic writing is a direct communication. It is a written communication. So an automatic writing medium will go into a trance their hand will begin to move unconsciously and the writing they produce can be interpreted. It can be symbols and drawings, but it can also be scripted writing. And the planchette is going to make that experience rather than relying on an automatic writing medium is going like table tipping before it and talking boards after it is going to make that phenomenon a shared collaborative experience. And it's going to do it with a product. And that's going to be a planchette. This is a probably a, an 1890s EI Horseman scientific planchette in its very rare red-labeled box. We're going to open it up and see what a planchette is, and it is a small board. This is about eight inches long for those who can't quite get a sense of scale, and this is it. It does look rather familiar to a talking board indicator. It's bigger it's longer, it's wider. Uh, It's got instructions for use on here. And what you're looking at is two small pantograph wheels. And the third wheel, as it were, is a pencil. And so that would be inserted and leveled out. And the planchette would be placed on a tabletop on top of a large piece of, of, say, butcher paper. And the Experimenters would then place their hands, just as we are familiar with in the modern era of the talking board planchette, place their fingertips on top of the board. And just like the tables, it would begin to move mysteriously. And this would, in effect, produce collaborative automatic writing. It produces it, unfortunately, kind of in a a steady line, but it produces a legible communication. And this is the this direct writing form of spirit communication is going to become, we haven't got there chronologically yet, but in 1868, it's going to explode on the scene in the same way that the talking tables did 15 years previously. And it's going to become the most in vogue form of spirit communication or at home, you know, spirit communication that uh, the world has seen really since the Fox sisters made their first splash.
3: It starts with the table tipping, then it it comes down to people trying to figure out how to capture some kind of communication from the table tipping action, at which point that evolves all the way to even attaching a writing implement to a table, then the planchette is essentially just a tiny table. exactly. And so now we're taking the table and focusing more on the message that the little tiny table is going to make, so then we're putting something underneath it to be able to read or uh, absorb that message.
1: Yes, perfectly put it is a little weird. It's what I call the curious leapfrog. I think it's pretty inarguable. As much as I adore the planchette, its scrawlings can be illegible and difficult to decipher. And so we already have alphabetic devices in play. These tabletop alphabetic devices, some of which like the psychograph, although it was expensive and shot itself in the foot for that reason, we abandon And there's also things like alphabet calling can be refined with an alphabet card, which did exist very early on, where the medium would point to the letters on the card, and these cards, illustrations, they look like a talking board, but the medium would use a pencil to point, there's no automatic element, there's no ideomotor element, she would just point to the letters and then wait for the rap to respond to the right letter. So you have the alphabet card in play, you have the... Miniaturized tables producing writing, but it takes like uh, about 35 years for those to be paired in a way that's commercially successful. Spiritualists certainly, and that's kind of a misconception that I see in a lot of modern articles, even those that have used my research, they draw these very thick lines of evolutionary branches between these devices. And the fact is, we have all sorts of What we would call Ouija precursors, you know, where it's alphabet boards being paired with this and all that. But it does still take a long time and they don't catch fire really until the 1880s.
3: I have a bachelor's in communications, and I remember when we were talking about the invention of the television and how it developed concurrently in different countries, different methods that worked different ways. There were still televisions and one had like a huge whirring mechanism inside of it that was really loud and you had to be lit like you were standing on the sun. There was other devices that came out at the same time. But the more you look at history, it seems to me, and I'm learning this too late in life, that's what always happens. There's a lot of different things developing and then just by serendipity or chance or luck, one thing falls out of that and just really takes off.
1: Right. And in this case, we can trace that serendipity Luckily, through the newspaper record, you know, in in the case of the planchette, it's languished for years of, you know, this cottage industry that kind of came and went in Paris. Uh, Thomas Welton is producing planchettes early on, sort of pre-craze. He's this English artificial limbs maker. And then you have the instance it comes to America eight years before it really explodes and and, uh, poor GW Quattrell is um, producing these things. But it takes a sensational article. Again, I I use the term going viral because that's the best uh, way to put it. This sensational article comes out. It's first reprinted or, or printed in 1867, October 1867, in a British publication called Once a Week. It's about an American expat who's with some British friends vacationing in Scotland and some women at this sort of soiree they go to have a planchette. And it tells this very sensational story of the communications they received from it. And this article catches fire and is reprinted, you know, on the continent. It's reprinted, you know, here in the U.S. And is so effective at stirring the passions of planchette use that it's reprinted. I still find it in specimens in the boxes of planchettes as late as the 1920s, where the story is reprinted as sort of a sales pamphlet. And that, it gets reprinted, and suddenly the demand for planchettes skyrockets.
3: Backing up just a little bit to the origin stories and some of the stuff that I read on your website that I did want to touch on before we got too much further yeah. away from the beginning of it, what about the this, this story about the monks, the French monks, <laughs> and they, they are practicing it and the bishop's nephew saw it and brought it to this party? Was that the same party you're talking about? Or how does that all
1: connect? It's funny because it's not really backing up. These conflicting narratives are all a consequence of unfulfilled answers for a new international craze. And so as the planchet takes hold, you have a lot of people trying to claim provenance on it, even though it's been around for 15 years. You suddenly have all of these companies claiming that they have patents either applied for or granted when we actually only have one planchette patent from that age era it was really not a patentable device and we'll come full circle to the Ouija board and the patent that it was granted and how it should never have been granted in the way that the planchette patents were also similarly not granted because it was already a thing like it was already public domain right and it's sort of the same way with planchettes and as this thing seemingly comes from nowhere the explanations for where it came from sort of squirm out of the woodwork as well and really muddy the waters for me as a researcher. So you have a lot of competing narratives for the origins of this device that come out in the wake of its great craze as people are trying to explain the origins of it and where it came from and how it came out of nowhere essentially this year.
2: Why do you think no one kept track of the history of something that was such a sensation
1: in its day, and
2: grew to such popularity for a hundred years before, uh, you know, we get into the modern uh, mid-20th century where it's still popular. Why did nobody keep track of this, and why is it so hard to find?
1: This history wasn't traced. I mean, it was of the moment. The history that I have told through my website, my research, is the reconstructed history of all the bits and pieces of people, and not even them trying to explain where it came from a lot of this is just a consequence of other writings in the same way that like the example I thought of actually on a drive yesterday was there's probably somebody in the world documenting inflatable seasonal yard decorations (laughs) right maybe you know actually I, I should change that there's probably not anyone documenting the history of inflatable yard art or collecting it, and 50 years from now, that stuff might be highly collectible. And you, you, we wonder, well, where did they all go? They were—they're so common. They're in everyone's yard. You can't drive a block without seeing an inflatable pumpkin. No way are those ever going to be worth anything. And that's exactly how things become valuable. You know, oh, I'm going to toss out this boxed Millennium Falcon that my son never played with because. There were so many of these in the toy store. How could this ever be valuable? And toss, there it goes. Baseball cards, how would this ever be you know, and it's that same way. Nobody's writing the history of baseball cards back then. They might talk about them incidentally. No one's writing the history of inflatable yard art now. They'll get mentioned in the papers. This kid had an accident or, you know, whatever we can reconstruct in the future. And for that reason, there is this sort of mad scramble to explain the origins of something that was not popular for 15 years, existed for 15 years, but and had a, a small cottage industry, but was not popular. And so a lot of these competing narratives come directly from these manufacturers trying to say this is where it came from. The whole Franciscan monks and the nephew of the Bishop of Aviers and all this like muddies the waters in a way there's also this fervent partisan that's a quote from one of these writings that there was actually an american that suggested this and that he was i believe he was a either a union or confederate general that was in paris that somehow introduced this idea you know and we traced it out there were only so many union generals and like me and my co-researchers like we're like okay who could that have been who was in paris in 1853. And, you know, we ended up honing in on three different people, but can find no proof that they were involved in any way. And uh, there's also this very Victorian way of writing. Oftentimes names are obscured. It might be, and in my case, directly dealing with the origins of the planchette. We were at the home of Mr. B. Blank. Thanks, Victorian (laughs) scholars and writers for that. (laughs) Mr. B. Dash. And yes. there's so much of that, the sort of built in anonymity. There are competing narratives, but it's my belief, my perfect belief that Alan Kardec, he has the most definitive account, even dates it. He just doesn't reveal who the actual seance circle is, but. I think it was Mr. B and Mr. B equates with Mr. Bowden and other researchers tend to agree with that.
3: And that's the one that you shared with us a few moments ago, the origin Yes,
1: story. yes. The June 10th, 1853. Yeah. You know, because his two daughters are using become planchette users. And then there is a an older medium who also uses the planchette. But we believe it was birthed in a, in a seance circle in, in, the, in the Bowden household.
2: So as I see it, there's two really main interesting stories about uh, the history of the Ouija board, which could really contribute to its lore and its mysticism. And one is the story of the patent. These guys were savvy businessmen, okay? They knew that they should get a patent on the board, but to obtain a patent from the United States Patent and Trademark Office, you have to prove that your item actually works before they'll grant you one. So... Knowing they'd have to make some kind of successful demonstration, attorney Elijah Bond brought his sister-in-law, the medium Helen Peters, to the patent office with him in Washington, D.C. when he filed the application. So here's the story in a nutshell. The chief patent officer there agreed to accept the Ouija application if the board could spell out his name, which was supposedly unknown to Elijah and Helen. And as the story goes, they held a Ouija session right there in his office asked the question, and the board did accurately spell out his name. And apparently, the chief patent officer was so freaked out and or impressed enough that the application was allowed to proceed on February 10th, 1891. A patent for the Ouija board was granted. Well, this is something you pick up in the article here, because Robert Murch, who said he's interviewed the descendants of the board's founders and examined the patent documents, said this story is true, at least according to them. What's not known, however, is whether Elijah Bond, not just any attorney, but a patent attorney, already knew the chief patent officer's name. Perhaps he got some help for the prophet Elijah of the Hebrew Bible. <laughs> that's a whole other story. But uh, but the interesting takeaway here is that the patent application didn't say, what it didn't say was how the board actually worked. Not that the Kennard Novelty Company founders could tell you, because it might be like the source of all information in the realm of the Psy phenomenon, and that's uh the greek letters psi and the dictionary uh will define psi as any purportedly psychic phenomenon as psychokinesis telepathy clairvoyance or the like so we're going to start using that uh, that term much more because it makes us sound uh, yes. smart and uh, yes, makes it makes us sound like informed authorities here We've talked a little bit about this in uh, our other coverage of things like remote viewing and uh, where this information comes from. And you've had your own experience now with remote viewing. And back then, Ingo Swan, one of the originators of the remote viewing program for the military, his term for it was uh, the effort, because people ask, where is this information coming from? And we talked a little bit about this in uh, Edgar Casey's view as well. So the same terms apply here. And his word for it was it comes from the matrix. And I would love to think that that, uh, that idea is sparked from him, that it's a woven fabric of information out there that we're somehow able to access. Or, as we said before, some like to believe it's the Akashic Record. But if you ask Lori Williams, she said, well, look, we can't tell you. Use whatever term or idea you want to. It just comes from somewhere. It comes from not here. <laughs> and not, it, you know that's the thing is that it you definitely uh has access to some subconscious properties, but that's the big question: is it within us? Is the knowledge already within us? As you mentioned earlier, the idiomotor function phenomenon here uh that we're just doing it, and then where do we get that information? Or is the information external and it's being beamed to us? We're accessing it through this board or some device or a tin trumpet, something. You know yeah. that's the big question that you're never going to get to. But it's just so fascinating to me that in a general sense, it's believed that the information comes from someplace beyond your conscious, typical experience. And then you got to wonder, what are the mechanics of how that metaphysical information gets to us? Is it solely through a device or conscious minds? But whatever the source, that aura of mystery in just what made it seem to work only added to the Ouija board's popularity and success with the public. And it was quite successful. Yeah, it's not hard to find old ads for the Ouija board. They're all over the internet. They're
3: so fun to look at because it, what a fun thing to market as a marketing mm-hmm. person. You come back and look at that. This is one ad for us that you dug up. This is from uh, Danziger and Company, uh, which yeah. their uh, slogan says, always the first to introduce any new novelty. This time, <laughs> Ouija or Ouija, depending on it. back then it was probably Ouija, <laughs> right out of that. the wonderful talking board the Ouija is without doubt the most interesting, remarkable, and mysterious production of the 19th century. Its operations are always interesting and frequently invaluable, answering as it does questions concerning the past, present, and future with marvelous accuracy. It furnishes never-failing amusement and recreation for all classes, while for the scientific or thoughtful, its mysterious movements invite the most careful research and investigation, apparently forming the link which unites the known with the unknown the material with the immaterial. It forces upon us the conviction that a great truth was contained in the statement of the Danish prince. Quote, there are more things in heaven and earth, Horatio, than were ever dreamed of in thy philosophy. End quote. Price $1.49.
2: Always the cheapest. Always the cheapest. And that is the cheapest
3: at Danziger's. <laughs> yeah, 6th Street and Penn <laughs> Avenue. And the thing about this that um I will say it's the cheapest because every other ad I found, it was $1.50.
2: Ooh, there you go, <laughs> undercutting the, uh, the competitor by a cent, which actually back then was, was somewhat significant. Yeah, yeah. And here's the other thing about
3: this. It's a piece of wood and another piece of wood. It is, we're <laughs> well, selling- there's some printing
2: on it, sure. Yeah, yeah,
3: some printing. Okay, a little ink, a little paper, you know, maybe
2: glued to it or something. Or it's painted. But Scott, yeah. you just hit the nail on the dollar and 49 pennies idea here is that you're not buying a piece of wood uh, right. with a, ro- a rolling piece of wood on top of that. You're buying entertainment. And possibly maybe you're buying the last communication from a past loved one which you can't put a price on that. No, you can't. Right. With Google Street View, though, I I did look at 6th Street and Penn Avenue, and then I think there's just a 7-Eleven there. There's also a a theater, though, uh, close by. But yeah, Danzinger's, I do not believe, is still there. No. That gives you an idea. Like, geez, what a... Yeah, talk about ad copy. Yeah. Getting highfalutin there. Yeah, it's a lot of copy. Shakespeare and... uh, Yeah. Yeah, very metaphysical there. Uh, But that gives you the ideas that they know how to tap into what is appealing to the purchasing public at this time. And in just a year after that patent was granted, the Kennard Novelty Company was expanding from just having one startup factory in Baltimore to having seven total in cities like New York, Chicago, and London. But by a year later in 1893, an original employee, stockholder, and protege of the aforementioned Colonel Washington Bowie named William Fold had taken over operations, and Charles Kennard and Elijah Bond were no longer with the company. By 1898, William Fold had exclusive licensing rights to manufacture the Ouija board, with approval of his mentor, Bowie, who was one of the only two original investors left and the majority shareholder. Colonel Bowie would end up selling his remaining interests in the company to Fold for a dollar in 1919. Hmm. He couldn't even buy his own board for that. Yeah. (laughs) Well, it turned out to be a good investment for Fold to, to stick with the company as being a, you know one of the first ranking employees here, but also an investor. So he put up some of his own money, apparently, because during Fold's time with the company, he prospered greatly, while some of those who were first involved with the company were now out and tried to sell their own talking boards with little success. You know, weirdly, he, he claimed that the Ouija board had told him to build a new factory, which he did but that might be part of the lore, the mysterious lore of the of the board. And then he promptly died falling off the roof of it in a freak accident in 1927. And here's another interesting twist. His obituary in the New York Times had claimed he was the inventor of the Ouija board. And many people associated his name with having invented it. Although Fold himself
0: never claimed to be.
2: This is Ethan from Tennessee. When I'm not researching cryptid encounters or indulging in extraterrestrial contact, I listen to astonishing legends. Let's get back to the show.
3: Can you imagine this guy walking into Shark Tank with this thing? And saying, <laughs> Look, here's my Mr. idea. Wonderful, yes. And
2: then, and then he has to demonstrate it with them. <laughs> well, here's the thing that I would say even on that show, You know, yes, they're all uh, sophisticated, savvy people on the panel. I I certainly uh, enjoy watching them. But if he was able to spell out the unknown name or an unknown uh, factoid that only one, uh, maybe Mark Cuban or Mr. Wonderful, only they knew and it worked and it freaked them out, you would get their attention. You would. But would they put millions of dollars in it to make millions of them? If it did it most every time. <laughs> that's yeah, right, the thing. It's right. like, you're not going to waste their time in five minutes. Like, after one minute, it's like, get out you're of here. You're moving it. That board. No, yeah. you are. <laughs> well, that's the point. What's going on? And it's like the chief patent clerk. When his name was spelled out, he was impressed. Uh, he doesn't know how it works. It's just that he didn't believe, according to the story, he didn't believe Elijah and uh, Helen knew his name. Now, maybe they did before and they, they just like uh, tricked him, uh, duped him into that, and it still freaked him out. But if they didn't, that's quite an impressive stunt. And it was enough of a demonstration that it got a patent.
3: All right. Well, let's hear about this portion of the story from Brandon, get his take on it.
2: We've established that planchettes themselves, and it's all birthed from this use of a table, a large table down to a small table. And now, what does that transition to a board? on a table, and we're talking about the spirit board now, or the witch board, or the Egyptian mystery board, that idea, there is some report, actually it's in our narrative here, that in 1886, there were spiritualist camps in Ohio that were starting to use the talking boards more prominently, and that's where Charles Kennard got his idea. Is that narrative seem
1: to play out? It does, and so it's just important to note that Well, you know, we mentioned Wagner's psychograph in 1853. That is, for all intents and purposes, I mean, it is a talking board. Its indicator is a little wonky. It's this weird crisscross framework, but it serves the exact same purpose. It pairs ideomotor movement on an indicator with an alphabet board as early as 1853. And you could be real absolutist about it and just stop there. And some of us kind of do. We're like, well, there it is. And it even gets an English provisional patent. And I'm fortunate enough, I've recovered an illustration of that thing as well.
3: I'm looking at it right now. I love it. (laughs) I'm looking at it right now. I just sent it to Forrest. I was like, you've got to see this thing.
1: Yeah, it's not a flat teardrop shaped planchette, but you have it. You have The unconscious muscular movement on an indicator paired with the talking board. You have pendulum boards as well, you know, where you're holding the pendulum, you know, wedding, wedding ring on a string. And then you have all these false starts in the 1860s and the 1870s. You have definitively and as well as accounts of the planchette being paired with an alphabet board. Rather than, you know, and you know, there's one illustration in particular. It's this oblong board or this long rectangular board. And somebody writes into a newspaper I'm like, hey, look, I put the alphabet on this long board and I took the pencil out because I'm tired of my wife scribbling. And I put a wheel in that planchette and it rolls back and forth. And I mean, it's, again, it's a talking board, but it lacks that catalyst that we saw with the press and newspaper push, the media push of talking tables, the medium push that takes hold with the planchette in the wake of the Civil War in 1868, when it, you know, that article gets reprinted and the planchette becomes that thing. And in 1886, we see a similar widely reprinted article of what the Ohio spiritualists are up to, which Forrest mentioned earlier. You know, they pair the movements of the automatic writing planchette with an alphabetic board and they are calling this the new planchette is what many of the articles are entitled or the talking board and it creates a splash it's not the national sensation that the planchette you don't suddenly have all these people producing talking boards you do have the ws reed toy company does produce what they call their witch board getting a jump on the later manufacturers charles skinner by four years They produce a witch board, there may have been more than one, and they send it to President Grover Cleveland at his famous White House wedding, and uh, wishing him well in his administration. And he actually writes them a letter back saying, well, we're not going to use this for any (laughs) policy decisions, but thank you very much. (laughs) (laughs) And so actually, you have a toy company that produces some of these boards in the wake of this slightly viral-ish reprinted article that hits the national newspapers here in the U.S., but they don't commercialize it. It takes Charles Kennard, and and yes, Charles Kennard claims he invents it, invents the talking board in, or the Ouija in 1886. We get this from some 1920s newspapers, some letters to the editor, where all the competing interests for Ouija's history, which is now – really in the middle of its second huge revival by the 1820s spoiler alert the Ouija exists by that time but someone writes a letter to the editor asking about Ouija's history and suddenly all the disenfranchised early partners in the business begin writing competing letters to the editor spilling the beans on where it really came from. And of course, we have the benefit of hindsight now to go back into the public record and the newspapers and we can trace out, you know, Charles Kennard says that he was in his kitchen and he had a breadboard and a saucer and his mother had been a planchette user and he conceptualized the idea of pairing the alphabet board with the automatic movements of the planchette and then you have a local cabinet maker that steps, you know, the son of a local cabinet maker, EC Reisch, steps forward and says, no, it was actually my father who did that. Charles Kennard claims that he merely had EC Reisch manufacture some of these early, what would it be, early Ouija for him. But the fact is, it was very unlikely it was invented in his kitchen in 1886. Mm-hmm. It's much more likely it was invented on the toilet. As he read the newspaper of this account (laughs) that was published in the Baltimore Sun in 1886, along with many other newspapers at the time that actually had illustrations of a very planchette like board sitting on top of an alphabet card or board. And that idea resonated with him, stuck with him. And by 1890, that record's gone. Who's Googling in 1890 to prove him otherwise? He moves to Baltimore to commercialize this idea and sends Elijah Bond and Helen Peters to the patent office where they're able to secure a patent on a device already been in use by spiritualists for a few decades at that point, you know, or forms of it at that point. And certainly as little as four years prior had been in, in use and illustrated in papers, proving that he didn't invent it.
2: It's like patenting the wheelbarrow. And that's fine if you have some new addition to it that makes it unique and stands out above the rest. That's your idea. So let's say that Charles Kennard gets an idea from the newspaper about these spiritualist camps in the Midwest using the talking board. And his bright idea is somebody should mass market this. Like, there's probably no standardization. Somebody's just there painting the numbers on. I can manufacture a board. I'll get some guys together. We're pretty savvy business people. We could start making a bundle if this thing gets standardized in a way and mass marketed. So now the idea is with um, he, he, uh If you would, please take us through the the story as, as you know it with the first investors, uh, Elijah Bond, Colonel Washington Bowie, and this group of uh, initial investors. And how do they get that started leading up to the great story at the patent office?
1: You know, he goes from no kidding, selling fertilizer in Chestertown, Maryland, <laughs> okay. and uh, introducing this board, it said, at a Halloween party. I believe it was a Halloween party at Judge Wick's house, and taking this idea with him to Baltimore, and he's a Freemason. Uh, I've seen some of his signatures on some old Freemason documents there in Chestertown. Charles Kennard. Yes. And he takes this idea with him to Baltimore uh, with the idea to form a, a new company for the production of these talking boards, uh, these yeah, these standardized talking boards. Uh, He partners with Elijah Bond. He partners with Colonel Washington Bowie. All these early investors who are also Freemasons. Mm -hmm. So, you know, he goes to his local Freemason Hall and partners with his brethren there in this fraternal society. And uh, Elijah Bond takes over the patent duties for that, submits the patent under his name. They form the Kinder Novelty Company. It will within a, a, a few short years be known as the Ouija Novelty Company, but forms the Kinder Novelty Company. In 1890, which is about the same time the the first patents are submitted, uh, when this visit where Elijah Bond, as well as Helen Peters, another early investor, take a visit to the patent office to demonstrate it. And according to family lore, uh, they were going to be denied the patent, but uh, they were able to demonstrate it. Helen Peters is said to have spelled out the unknown patent clerk's name with the board that he didn't you know he's like it works so well it will spell my name and it did and they were then awarded the patent again of a device i don't want to discredit the idea to commercialize the generic version of this you know obviously he deserves that credit but yeah unfortunately it was it should not he should not have been granted patent protections <laughs> on a, on a device that he didn't actually invent and they <laughs> right. did make modifications i mean i don't know if we could call them improvements but certainly the paddle-shaped planchettes, you know, what was, I believe, and there's no proof to this, but I believe that that was probably shaped that way to distinguish it from the diamond shape that was in that 1886 article and the and the heart or shield shape of planchettes from the, the craze from, from years before.
2: How true do you think that patent office story is? Because that's taken from the Descendants
1: of uh, Bond and uh, Helen Peters, right? Right. So I think the patent story narrative is pretty reliable. It goes uncontested. So again, a lot of this early company history is taken from this 1920s newspaper spat. And so the general facts tend to be largely agreed upon, even by these gentlemen involved in this dispute, because Charles Kennard is going to get removed from his own company in fairly short order. Like these, you know, these other investors take it over and boot him and he'll go on to invent competing devices, which will be subsequently shut down. And then Elijah Bond does the same thing, you know. So like the two guys that really make it, you know, your early two leaders in the company get ousted. By the Baltimore natives, and uh, we're not sure why.
2: I was about to ask you if you knew the story of why uh, Kennard and Bond, other than you know, certainly won a lot of money, capitalist
3: opportunity, yes. and guys who are green, get them out. You know, it's just like the McDonald's dudes. If you, yes. you, know, if you
1: no. <laughs> yeah, you, absolutely. Like,
3: get this is a great idea. See you later. <laughs> and you
1: have to think like where the expertise was. You know, certainly Elijah Bond had the patent in his name, but he signed it over to the company. And, you know, you got to keep in mind the people who do stay in control, of, in control of the company are the lawyers, right? Right. And then the lawyers are going to end up licensing control of the company or contracting control of the company to a guy, William Fold, who was an early investor, but really a shop hand. He was like the shop foreman. So he's working the floor. And whether they saw in him, either they just straight up got along with him better, they maybe saw him as more astute, more moldable, more influenced, who knows? Uh, Or maybe they just thought he was more responsible. All of this is lost to history. All we know is they get ousted. We also know that E.C. Reich, who contested the early invention of the talking board or the attribution of invention, he claimed that it was actually his idea, and then him and Charles Kenner were partners uh, while Charles Skinner maintained that he had EC reach make his idea, but he comes to Baltimore stakes his case with the other founders and actually gets awarded stock in the company and then comes back for more a little bit later. And unfortunately he's no longer alive in, in time for this 1920 dispute, but his son is, and his son speaks up and advocates for him. So These early founders were provided enough evidence and this also might be a contributing factor to them ousting Charles Kenner. It might've been an embarrassing episode for them. Pure speculation. We don't know for sure, but we do know that EC Reese shows up with enough evidence for them to hand over substantial stock awards to this guy. He just shows up and goes, Hey, you're manufacturing my thing and gets two payoffs for it. And so it might be that Charles Kennard, you know, was ousted just sort of out of irresponsibility as a dishonest business decision. Again, all speculation, mm. but for whatever reason, maybe some of these, maybe all of these, maybe none of them, Charles Kennard is removed from the company. A bond at some point along with him, and control of it is assigned to William Fold, whose name will become synonymous with the Ouija board uh, even after his death and well into the 1960s. It's still printed on the bottom of. Parker Brothers boards in the 1960s.
2: Oh, yes. There it is. Parker Brothers. Yep. William
1: Fold.
2: Yep. William That's...
1: Fold talking board <laughs> set, you know, but long after. Yeah. I mean, William Fold is, is dead, you know, a few decades yeah. at this point, as even his son, William Jr. is no longer with the company at this point. But yeah, there it is. Division wow. of kindergarten. Programs.
2: Is it uh, what is Colonel Bowie's doing that William Fold, his, uh, you know, his protege gets ushered in to uh, take control, like, uh operating control of the company because it becomes the William Fold company.
1: It does. It seems to be. And, you know, he's an attorney. There's a lot we don't know. We know that Bowie and his son, Bowie Jr., there's two juniors in this company, so Mm -hmm. it can muddy the waters a little bit. (laughs) Like, we also know that there are some shady dealings going on on some level where you have some companies that we believe must have received cease and desist, letters like W.S. Reed. We mentioned the W.S. Reed Toy Company earlier. We know in 1886 they produced what they called the Witch Board. We now have proof from newspapers of the era that they sent a talking board to President Cleveland. They should have been able to prove that their creation predated this patent and had it dismissed. But for whatever reason, they go to the toy press, they go to the trade magazines, and relinquish all control and forward all future sales to the Ouija Novelty Company. Why or how? I don't know. It might not have been worth it for them to fight it. But on the other hand, the exact opposite thing occurs where we see Bowie in later years defending companies that are seemingly with no other evidence in violation of the Ouija trademarks. Even if the Mm -hmm. patent is expired by then, they are using the word Ouija in Baltimore. These are Baltimore-based companies. Baltimore Novelty Company is producing a Ouija board with the name Ouija on it in violation of their trademark, and they end up taking a case to the Supreme Court over whether the talking board should be considered a toy or not, and how it should be taxed as such. They are arguing they shouldn't have to pay the taxes only being a toy. They lose this argument in the Supreme Court, but Bowie gets involved in this case with a company that seems to be in violation of we just trademark. And so, unfortunately, the history of this seemingly selective enforcement is unfortunately lost. But we, we know that Bowie is up to some shenanigans because, uh, again, selective enforcement really is the best way to put this.
2: So the rest of the history of the Ouija board is also interesting in the context of what goes on in the history of humanity, specifically, of course, in the United States. But where was spiritualism at at this point? And why does it surge and ebb like it does? Well, I suppose like a lot of trends but in this case here with the boards, you know, everyone bought the boards, not just those practicing spiritualism. The ones that tended to not like the boards were now psychic mediums because they weren't needed if you could have a board that uh, would do their job for them. And so looking to that popularity, there's a good quote, again, from the Smithsonian article from Robert Merch: quote, people want to believe the need to believe that something else is out there is powerful. This thing is one of those things that allows them to express that belief. It's a device that it showed up at the right time in the right place, marketed the right way, was simple enough, and gave enough results that people kept their interest in it. Now, the idea is that it pairs with the movement of spiritualism, and it rises with the tide of spiritualism. So, you know, spiritualism surges after times of great upheaval, like economic strife, social unrest, and after lots of death, like wars and epidemics and uncertain times. And with it, so did the popularity of the Ouija board also rise because the Ouija board saw a spike in sales right after World War I and then the Great Depression starting in 1929 and lasting until the 1930s. During the Depression years, the Fold Company continued to start up new factories to meet demand. Imagine that. After the Great Depression, everyone's closing down. They're still expanding a little. And towards the end of World War II in 1944, one New York department store sold 50,000 Ouija boards in five months, which is crazy. It outsold a Monopoly, I believe. That's right, it did. I know it did that one year. I don't remember what year, but I know that it did one year at least. I think it was right around that time. It might have been during that uh, five-month period there. But Parker Brothers bought the Ouija board rights from the Fold Company in 1966. And yeah, you're right. A year later, sold over two million sets, beating out Monopoly sales. I was negative two years old. (laughs) You're just uh, a future customer. Yes. But think about the context of history around this, not just spiritualism, but uh, 1967. Because from 1967 on, more American troops were headed to Vietnam. Mm -hmm. That year also endured what was called, quote, the long, hot summer of 1967, with 159 race riots flaring up across the country. This is from Wikipedia, just the description of it. In June, there were riots in Atlanta, Boston, Cincinnati, Buffalo, and Tampa. In July, there were riots in Detroit, Birmingham, Chicago, New York City, Milwaukee, Minneapolis, New Britain, Rochester, Plainfield, and Toledo. The most destructive riots of the summer took place in July in Newark, New Jersey, and Detroit, Michigan. 1967 also saw the summer of love. And again, another uh, description, or paragraph from Wikipedia. The Summer of Love was a social phenomenon that occurred during mid 1967 when as many as 100,000 people, mostly young people, sporting hippie fashions of dress and behavior, converged in San Francisco's neighborhood of Haight Ashbury. More broadly, the Summer of Love encompassed the hippie music, drug, anti war, and free love scene throughout the American West Coast and as far away as New York City. Uh, hippies, sometimes called flower children, were an eclectic group. Many were suspicious of the government rejected consumerist values, and generally opposed the Vietnam War. A few were interested in politics. Others were more concerned with art, music, painting, poetry in particular, or spiritual and meditative practices.
3: Yeah, everything old is new again, and I'll tell oh, you exactly. something else. I, I went to the corner of Haight and Ashbury uh, about <laughs> yeah. uh, 15, 20 years ago, and you know what I saw? Yeah. Uh, ben and Jerry's and an Aardvark's.
2: <laughs> well, there you go consumerism <laughs> wins out again yeah because people i was still really ice cream. yeah 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 <laughs> well <laughs> what a twirling hippies uh, listening to janice joplin and, yeah and, uh, yeah God, well so the the point though here is that the rise and tide of spiritualist thought and metaphysical thinking well there you go and following with that is the success of the ouija board because when things are tough People look for answers outside of themselves. We we yearn for some answers to make sense of this crazy world we're in. And you're seeing a little bit of that now.
3: Well, we meant to get to this a little earlier, but there's been so much fascinating information. Uh, we mm. found ourselves here without talking about yet how this
2: thing got its name. Yeah, Scott, that's the second interesting story for me in the legend and lore of the Ouija board.
3: That's the thing about it. They had apparently, as we um, find out from Brandon, they had a name for it that's lost to history, a working Mm -hmm. title kind of name. Right, right. But uh, there's a few different stories about where the Ouija, the word Ouija or Ouija came from. Mm -hmm. And um, we're going to be talking about that here with him in a minute. You know, a lot of people think, oh, it's the French word and the German word for yes, it's we and ja.
2: Well, yeah, German would be ja.
3: Yeah, Well, I'm not German, so I'm going to say ja. (laughs) Well, yeah, But anyway, um, just when you thought it was safe to go back in the water. (laughs) But uh,
2: the, I'm just trying to prevent some emails. Yes, here, yes, I know.
3: I know. I've given up on that. But there are some other stories, and I, I don't want to give them away here. But the stuff that's coming in about the name of it, there's nobody better to talk to about it than Brandon. So for this next segment of our interview with Brandon, I'm going to do a Top Gear style. <clears throat> oh, dear. In this next segment, Scott learns how to pronounce Porsche. Forrest learns how to say Ouija, and Ray Parker Jr. <laughs> gets trolled about the theme to Ghostbusters. <laughs> Okay. All right. So, coming back around to the evolution of the Ouija board, which is obviously, you know, where we're getting to with this particular series that we're doing. Yes, Forrest.
2: Before we get into this, Scott is still calling it the Ouija board. Oh, yes. <laughs> now, how do you say it?
1: Yeah, I say it both ways. And the company will popularly endorse both pronunciations
2: oh see
3: forrest wanted to got he wanted to get me there
2: no i'm just saying it, it's taken me this long to get scott to finally stop saying porsche rather than porsche <laughs> so chef, i thought right? do <laughs> i have to work on ouija now versus ouija well like what what's the uh, what's the accepted uh, pronunciation but i'm glad that they they accept both of course as a as a company wanting to sell the product like call it whatever you want just buy one
1: yeah exactly
3: Speaking of what it's called, there seem to be several competing stories about the origin of the name, and right. you have dug you've drilled down on, on on those. so we'd love to hear from you and our listeners would, I'm sure too. Where do people think that the name Ouija or Ouija came from?
1: <laughs> so for many years, the source of the Ouija's true name uh, was under a lot of dispute. Uh, the most common theory was that, and we see this reprinted, even in the 1920s, 30s, 40s, up to the modern era, it's still reprinted to this day that it was the combination for the French and German words for yes, we, and ja. But we actually, thanks to the rather definitive source of the company's founders who were squabbling in the Baltimore Sun in the pages of the local newspaper in the 1920s, know that the board actually named itself. The account goes that in April of 1920, at a boarding house, some of the early company founders met and they had a working name for the board. We don't know what that name was, but they had kind of a working title for it and uh, they uh, apparently weren't satisfied with it. And so in this discussion, this outgrowth, uh, they decide to ask the board itself what it would like to be called. Seated at the board was uh, Elijah Bond, the patentee Elijah Bond's sister-in-law, Helen Peters. And she was considered in this account, a strong medium. So she takes the planchette in hand and the board, uh, after some use spells out O-U-I-J-A, Ouija. The founders ask what that means and the board spells out good luck. And so we have this definitive source for the Ouija having named itself. But It's such a unique name that researchers, we've often looked at what might have influenced this name. There's another part of the account where it's described that Helen Peters is wearing a locket with a a woman's face on it, and apparently a word, it says it had the word Ouija on it, but the word Ouija did not really exist before this point, so it's unlikely that she just had this random assemblage of consonants and vowels on her necklace. And so someone had asked her is that what you were thinking of whenever you spelled this out and she said no. Anyway, history was made. They went with it. But we looked at a lot of possible sources for what could have influenced this name. An early largely discredited theory was that it was a reference that maybe the woman in the lock it was the the author Weeda and that uh, she was a very popular author and that maybe for whatever reason that was you know this was sort of a piece of fan art or you know some locket that that had her picture from a fan of hers. The more compelling theory to me is, uh, you know, with this locket and and the origin of this sort of associated name that might have influenced Ouija is the fact that Helen Peters' then-future husband, Ernest Nosworthy, actually grew up in the UK in a family of spiritualists who were closely associated with one of the most famous spiritualists of their day. And this is Cora Scott Hatch. She has many names. She's most popularly known as Cora Scott Hatch. The interesting fact is that Cora Scott Hatch, who stayed with Ernest Nosworthy, who was Helen Peters' future husband, stayed with his family whenever she visited England. And they were her, her biggest fans and supporters there uh, and, and was very close with that family. Her spirit guide was named Weena. So Weeja with an N. So the more compelling theory, if we have to try to attribute what is on that locket that seems to have influenced Ouija's name, that's probably the more compelling theory is that uh, her then fiancé had this family artifact that was, that was associated with Cora Scott Hatch uh, and, and her spirit guide more so than, than the author Ouija.
2: Well then, let me ask you this, because I wondered this about the Weeda angle here. Say that uh, there's already a good name; it's it's inspirational. It's Weena, or or even if it's uh, Weeda, it's never really clear to me in the from the story how then that transferred to the board, because the idea, though, is that her husband, Ernest uh, Nosworthy, didn't say, like, well, how about Weena for for a name for the board, because, you know, here's the connection, and it was suggested, the story goes, that the board actually spelled out the name. So then that would imply that, subconsciously, that was in the mind of the participants, and that's what caused the board to spell it.
1: So the original account actually says that the word Ouija is on the locket. And they ask her if that influenced her. And she says, no, like that mm. she wasn't thinking of that. But the word Ouija had no meaning prior to this <laughs> moment. Uh-huh. So, yeah, it, it creates an interesting sort of mental puzzle for, for researchers to try to decipher as to why. You know, she was she was wearing a locket that said a word that didn't exist before that moment. On it,
3: it's like when Ray Parker Jr. wasn't thinking of "I want a new drug" when he wrote Ghostbusters, right? right? (laughs) Yeah, that's pretty fascinating. Then I, I guess then let's go just a little bit further now into once they actually get it named Ouija and how it progresses from that point forward. It it changes hands, right, to Parker Brothers. How what goes on with the rest of its history up until today?
1: So the Ouija, like the planchette before it, it, is going to really have a history of sales that ebbs and flows. The company has been sold many times. We just currently a copyright owned by Hasbro after the company changed hands a few times uh, from its original acquisition from the Fold family by Parker Brothers in 1966. But for many years, it was shepherded by the Fold family from the 1890s onward. And so that family saw its fortunes really ebb and flow throughout time. It it certainly uh, was a hit when it came out in the early 1880s. It had to stave off a number of competitors in its early years. It will uh, bump up again in the 19-teens. And particularly in the... One thing that we see frequently repeated not only with planchettes which suffer their first period of pop culture phenomenon in the wake of the civil war in 1868 you see in the wake of the spanish influenza and the the great war world war one you see we just probably most unprecedented spike in popularity in 1920, as people are trying to reconcile these great losses of life. We'll also see this pattern repeated in the 1940s, uh, where another huge spike in popularity for the talking board. We see that Periods of great loss and conflict often have people questioning the afterlife. And and when you have these commercial devices that enable them to explore those questions, they become more popular. Just as a sort of a loose statistical example of just how popular we're talking, uh, some recent research in the newspaper databases. I was going year by year and just doing searches for Ouija. And you hit like 1917 and it's like, I don't know. These numbers aren't exactly accurate. You get the idea. It's like four hundred sixty articles, you know, or keyword matches in the newspaper database. And then you you move up to nineteen, uh, nineteen, and it's like oh, oh seven hundred eighty-two articles in the newspaper database. And then you hit nineteen twenty in keyword Ouija, and it jumps to like twenty-nine thousand keyword hits. But you know, from a few hundred. To nearly 30,000 in a one year period, in a otherwise pretty consistent spread of, of a newspaper database, you know, and uh, massively popular. Popular music centered around it. It was the hula hoop, it was the yo yo. It was, but more so, it was a cultural phenomenon. It pervaded music, it pervaded the headlines, it was um, comics. I have, gosh, I mean, just hundreds of, you know, comic strips that featured the Ouija, you know, comedies and film and were the birth of the film era here. It was uh, stage plays. I mean, it was just incredibly culturally pervasive and really cemented itself in a way in a new media era that, the planchette never had a chance to, you know, we're talking about several decades past the planchette's popularity, although the planchette, and again, these histories and these evolutionary branches aren't absolute, you know, they they bleed over into one another. The planchette rides the coattails of the mm. talking board. I mean, it's a direct evolutionary descendant of it and certainly has its own periods of popularity. The Ouija board doesn't take well in England, for instance, but mm. the planchette hugely popular in the 20s uh, and 30s in the UK. And you see a huge explosion of those there. A lot of my collection is actually British planchettes from that era. But they really sort of propel and push one another uh, in a really interesting way. But it's really hard to overstate the cultural phenomenon that the Ouija was in 1920 and the 1920s. And that establishes it with this Foothold in popular culture that we just don't see go away because it keeps right. coming back. It, it has new stages of popularity. The 1940s, in particular, talking boards hugely popular. The Fold family does not give up on it. In fact, uh, uh, it, it was it was told to the Fold family to you know to never let the Ouija go, which they did in 1966. But the right. following year in 1967, now acquired by Parker Brothers, with Again, here's one of the iconic <laughs> yeah. Parker Brothers boards.
2: That's the one I remember. That's the one I grew up with.
1: You know, a lot of us grew up with this one. Yep. This is gonna outsell Monopoly in nineteen sixty-seven.
2: So speaking of nineteen sixty seven, just give broad strokes on the rest of the history uh from that point until now. William Fold dies in a freak accident in nineteen twenty-seven. Did he actually uh build the new factory he fell off of because of the Ouija board told him to?
1: I mean, that was his claim, right? But this guy was very smart with the press. He was very clever as to not deal in absolutes, particularly when questioned about this. He always left, for example, we see evidence of him leaving the attribution of its invention sort of ambiguous and up in the air. Mm-hmm. Even though he knew that he did not invent this item, we see some of that in that 1920s squabbling. Also, the nature of it, whether or not it was spirits or, you know, what were you talking to? It was a psychic phenomenon. The company really liked to walk that line. Better to let the public make that decision for themselves. And they really excelled at being noncommittal in that regard. Well, and so, and, you know, that yeah. was really a genius of the company, you know, let people fill in like the Ouija itself, let their brains fill in the blanks.
2: I remember as kids, I mean, that added to the mystique of it. And that's why, you know, it's like, could we play Monopoly or should we grab the Ouija bus? I don't know. Like It's like, maybe we're not in the mood. You gotta be in the mood for it. So when the fold company finally sells the rights to Parker brothers in 1966, there's that boom from uh, in sales from 66 to 67. What are the broad strokes of the rest of the history up until Hasbro takes over? Or what major changes happened or, or major milestones with the board and, and its history?
1: Well, I mean, I don't know what the median age of your listeners is, but certainly I know that many of us grew up with some conception of the iconic Parker Brothers board with sure. the seance sitters in the corner, and even in the 80s and 90s, like you know, that board will continue to be reprinted. It's still in print today by the company Winning Moves, uh, who mm. produced that classic design. It does sort of fall like its manufactured, gets cheaper as time goes on, and in the, in the, the 90s. There's a glow in the dark version that I'm looking at right now. I've got one across the room that's <laughs> you gotta smaller. get smaller. Yeah, I'll get it. It's smaller and flimsier and cheaper and, but it's still that iconic design, you know. This is nineteen ninety-eight. So Hasbro's <laughs> acquired the company at this point. You see how much smaller it yeah. is than the original. And you know, but it's it's on, it's, it's all right. You yeah. know, it's okay. <laughs>
2: it glows. <laughs> They're saving on Ouija expenses, yeah.
1: yeah it's totally glow in the dark. So one thing we'll see is we will see media begin to change, bringing and sort of heralding Ouija for a new age of consumer. Right? You see, it has a brief appearance in The Exorcist in 1972, and and is sort of subtly held responsible for the possession of Linda Blair, you know, his character uh, in that. You know, she pulls it out, introduces Captain Howdy, the weird movement, the mom freaks out, and then before you know it, you know, she's. Spitting up, split pea soup.
2: That's often mentioned is that uh, The Exorcist in the early seventies was the turning point for the good-natured family fun vibe of the Ouija board. Previously, even though it, it was meant to be a little mysterious, now it was starting to be seen as possibly a a portal to Hades. Here, would you would you say that's accurate? And did that decline the popularity or that diminished the popularity of the Ouija board, or just
1: gave it another vibe? I, w- I would refute both of those, actually. Mm-hmm. One, I think movies such as The Exorcist, as well as Witchboard and its sequels and some of the more modern Ouija movies, only heightened the thrill and popularity of the talking board and have led to its continued endurance as a product and as an icon in American pop culture and worldwide pop culture. And also, history itself really refutes the idea that it was wholesome family activity up until Captain Howdy and a brief scene in The Exorcist. Mm-hmm. Um, I often cite an 1854 pamphlet by Henry Carrion. This is an early French, uh, really, our first documented regular planchette user that publishes his planchette writings in 1854 and he tells this amazing story of his planchette becoming possessed by the devil and the devil specifically so he's got a spirit guide that is said to be the spirit of a drowned young woman that's in his planchette that he communicates with, but then he starts getting gibberish and it goes like cussing him out, you know, but then in between these communications, he gets clear communications from a spirit guide. And she's like, go to the other planchette. So he's getting curses. <laughs> and then finally he switches board and she's like, "Woo! thank God the devil has possessed the varnish in your favorite planchette. I'm having trouble getting through. You need to strip it of its varnish to get the devil out. And then I'll be able to communicate through it again. So literally 1854, just a few years shy of the Fox sisters introduction of spiritualism on the worldwide stage, you have possessed planchettes cussing out their users, telling them they're going to burn in hell. And we never see this historical precedent subside throughout the decades. You only see it amplified with the addition of really 80s and 90s sensationalist movies because now we have a new form of media consumption that are contributing to that. And so while certainly in the 1920s in particular, we do have this wholesome Ouija Ouija tell me do, Ouija mind sheet music play at home about, oh, our lovely courtship over the Ouija board on our laps and Norman Rockwell is uh, right above us. You know, the courtship over the Ouija on the cover of the Saturday Evening Post there. You also, uh, concurrent with that, have lots of railings from the pulpit that communicating with the dead is evil. You have an early letter from the Bishop of Verveer's (laughs) condemning table tipping as diabolical and blasphemous. So certainly the clergy in the way of the clergy will never let a good opportunity like that pass and and have certainly been railing against uh, the Ouija board and its predecessors for as long as they've been around. And I just think we do have an unusual modern precedent of this sort of diabolical portal to hell, but it's not a new phenomenon. It seems amplified in the modern era, particularly by a lot of the paranormal shows and these popular personalities that seem squeamish, if not outright afraid of the use of the board and that they're opening doors you can't close and portals to beyond when fact of the matter is none of that is really new, only amplified. The
2: 1854 story, what was the name of the, uh, was it a sea captain? Or uh, who, who, was, uh, who was the center of that story with the haunted planchette?
1: Uh, Henry Carrion is the Henry. author of that oh okay I've got a paranormal review article about that if you really want to dive into those details I'm trying to remember his spirit names I thought it was uh Luos which is soul backwards but I think I'm confusing that with (laughs) the Bowden family's spirit guide but yeah he's like yeah his spirit guide is the spirit of a of a drowned woman who I think was part of a Jewish pogrom or something like you know like her family got driven to the river and drowned or something
3: So, Possessed Varnish, that's the first time I've ever heard that story. Uh, It's
0: possible. It's possible. It's possible.
2: (laughs) You're definitely going to have to get a belt sander if you want to get out of this. (laughs) (laughs) No, what I like is the specific nature of it. It's not the object. Yeah. It's the coating. Yeah. On the object. And if you're into that whole stone tape varnish theory, how is the varnish able to capture that? Maybe it is. And if you just remove it, you're
3: fine. That takes care of everything. Well, it's time to wrap up with Brandon. I am honestly at this point feeling like an expert on planchettes and talking boards now, which is how I like to feel after just an hour or two of talking to someone who's been studying it for decades now. uh, (laughs) Well, hey, let's not disrespect an upset
2: Zozo. No, well, we're going to talk about that going in a minute. Because uh, we're turning the corner here on family fun to something maybe much more dark.
3: Yes, as we get towards the end of part one here and set up Part two of this series, which is going to be nothing but Ouija stories next week, including a bunch that you guys sent in. But before we do that, let's talk about the, some of the crazier things that Brandon has encountered over the years, either with uh, talking boards, planchettes, or any other paranormal investigations he's been involved with. In the course of our research over the past uh, week or two, I've, I've came across the name Zozo or Zozo several times, which of course, you know, my first thought is uh, Led Zeppelin, <laughs> right. and Jimmy Page, but he's never said what that meant. I actually looked that up. Robert Plant says he told him and then uh, Plant forgot and, uh, Jimmy or Paigey, he calls him, has refused to tell him again. Right? So, yeah, not funny. So I was just wondering what you know about that name and its intersection with the talking board, the the Ouija board.
1: You know, that is certainly a, a modern phenomenon that I've I've had to deal with quite a a lot as a researcher. You know, it's kind of sort of created a lot of static in the historical record. It is a largely modern phenomenon. The the main promoter of that idea, Darren Evans, who I do know and call a friend. Darren Evans had a lot of personal experiences on the talking board, as many do, uh, that he has taken very personally and very deeply considered. And he's attributed these to what this entity that he believes he's contacted uh, has called itself and then tried to draw, there's Ozo himself, uh, that has tried to draw comparisons to other instances of similar names throughout history. Certainly the author and promoter of the Zozo idea has uh, really reached back through history and and tried to make a lot of attributions to similarly named entities and beliefs throughout history. It's not something I personally believe in. I've got my own theories as to why the Z and the O pop up so much on the, on the talking board. But it's certainly something that he believes in deeply and has, has promoted widely and has gotten some traction.
3: Have you personally ever had any contact or experiences, either with a talking board or a planchette or anything that you couldn't explain? And if you did, what was that like?
1: I had one really incredible experience that really informed my research in a way that gave me a lot more credence toward historical experience. So now when I read these accounts by historical figures of seances and and what they encountered and experienced, it really shed new light for me on how I interpret that data and in a way that I try to respect the narrative presented in historical documents more than I might have before. I was a featured speaker at the Phenomenology Conference, a paranormal conference in Gettysburg in 2012, and all the uh, different speakers and special guests were expected to sort of be the host for these overnight ghost hunts. And my group was assigned the Tilly House, which is a famously haunted boarding house uh, there that was used as a triage in the wake of the Battle of Gettysburg. So a lot of soldiers lost their lives there in the boarding house, literally on its floor. And uh, not being a paranormal ghost hunter of any strife and not having any of this equipment, uh, a peer of mine and I just grabbed a talking board and brought it along with us. And we had a group of about 10 people that. Uh, Changed hands with the planchette, using it, you know, two of us, four of us, at various times th- throughout the evening, and began to get really. That this was the part that I, I found incredibly formative for my research. Even with like four people on the board and people trading places and switching in and out, we got this incredibly complex and comprehensive narrative of this spirit that claimed, you know, that, that she was uh, present. During the events of the battle, she had nursed soldiers back to health there information on her husband and her children. When she was born, when she died, I remember she died in 1868. And I remember that because it was the same year of the planchette craze and just this incredibly cohesive narrative. She named other spirits that were supposedly in the room. And, you know, this one didn't want to be named. This one did. This is a shadowy presence. And, uh, it's not that I necessarily believe that all this information was accurate or true, but it really informed me that if I was prone to belief, how powerful that experience would have been for me and how, you know, if I was on the fence, how that might've pushed me over because it was incredibly, you know, everyone was taking it very seriously. There wasn't one person cramming their finger down on the planchette to get their answers. No, you know, you know, everybody was having fun, but in a good way that that wasn't making fun of the experience. It was very respectful of the experience. And I could certainly see how someone was prone to believe how that would push them closer to it. One aspect of that night that was rather uncanny was about three hours into this session, we hear a loud crash somewhere beyond and someone calling for help. And as we begin to sort of get up, you know, we hear someone like literally moaning, like across the street. And no sooner did we start to, you know, get up to investigate, did we see the flashing lights of emergency, you know, EMS services showing up and a gentleman, an elderly gentleman across the street, had fallen down the stairs and shoved his arm through a plate glass window mm-hmm. and injured himself pretty Ooh. severely. And someone had called and immediately the EMS showed up. So we go outside and we get this information and we go back inside to continue our Ouija session. Meanwhile, one of the participants in this overnight ghost on again, I was downstairs kind of doing this Ouija. He comes down the stairs. He says, what happened? And he's holding a device known as the obelisk, <laughs> which yeah. is a, in a, oh, yeah. yeah. An electronic, we know <laughs> Unalterable yes. word bank where yes. the belief being if you bring this in the presence of a, you know, a spectral presence, uh, spectral entity, that it can select words off this bank. And so you might not get anything. You might get random strings. You might get. And we're like, well, yeah, this guy outside, you know, fell down the stairs, shoved his arm through a plate glass window. You know, they called the cops. And this guy just like, and apparently you can't alter these words. You can't type stuff in. Right. You can only scroll through the results. And this guy looks like he's seen a ghost, right? We're like, what's going on? And he starts reading the results of the previous minute's word bank that was on his screen. So he scrolls up from the time of these events, and his word bank says, help, glass, blood, help stairs help help and we're like what wow like i don't know what's in that little electronic box but
0: come on
1: like really (laughs) that was that was pretty pretty eerie you know like we talked earlier about coincidence and you know that's one hell of a coincidence
2: well that goes to something i always say it's it's context and it's meaning like what you would get out of uh, the ouija board as you said before the fact that a bunch of people aren't sitting around and, and maybe something is getting you subconsciously to move the planchette, but in coordination with three or four other people, yeah, it's spelling out words that make sense and form a narrative and like with the ovilus it's like it's not just blood glass you know sandwich footstool it's like now it's making sense of something that has meaning and context and so that's kind of the 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 crazy part of it well let me ask you this uh next what are some of the the craziest other stories that you've come across in your research that just make you go what wow how is this happening
1: I run across a lot of claims in my research, some of the more phenomenal being teleportation of very heavyset mediums from one side of London to the other, mid-seance, appearing on the, in the middle of the seance table. Certainly a lot of sensational claims, you know, one that comes to mind, the Coon Spirit Room, where sitters claim they could shake these glowing ectoplasmic appendages, their hands, and then grab the wrist and then anything beyond there was no forearm like there was no arm to grab yeah you know you see that repeated quite a bit like these things ended at the forearm and you're like okay what's that about a ports is another one although it's pretty easy to write a a port so ports are um, items that manifest that the spirits deliver mid seance so um you know they could be trinkets flowers you know whatever the case may be but that's pretty easy to, to write off but you know you certainly have a lot of sensational stories of apparitions uh that mediums are able to manifest despite being strip searched and bound to chairs and all this stuff but also having been a magician and knowing lots of magicians in my life i i know how a lot of that stuff can be done <laughs> so sure
3: See, I, that's what I love. I love when you talk to somebody like him and you hear these stories that other historians, researchers have heard over the year just through the grapevine of those mm-hmm. small circles. I and mean, we hear stuff like that sometimes from other podcasters if you go to a con or something like that. Mm-hmm. But uh, these are stories that haven't made it into print anywhere or onto the internet. It's like Jim Harold, man. Yeah. He's got a ton of stories you've never heard. <laughs> it's only him and whoever told him the story. So this, it's really right. great stuff. And that's what I love about meeting up with people like that when you get somewhere.
2: The best stories are ones that you don't want other people to know or, or a big group of people, you know, the rest of the country and world to know.
3: Yeah, What well, was the best. I mean, we we haven't mentioned it in a long time, but one of my favorites that was on one of Jim's shows, I think it was on Campfire, which it was the one you told me about. The couple, the car broke down and they went into the abandoned oh. restaurant, except that it wasn't abandoned. And then they, they started to appear in the painting behind the
2: bar. That, yeah, no, 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 yeah, uh, we may have to uh, get a hold of that person. The car didn't break down. They were uh, driving back from a long, uh, it, it was a long drive after a concert. So it was late at night and they thought like, let's stop here at this roadhouse, which seems to be open. We'll just have a, a, a beer and relax and rest for a bit before we continue on to our journey. And uh, then it turned into a Twilight Zone slash night gallery episode. Yeah. And then they reals. they couldn't get
3: out, and the longer they stayed there, they were starting to appear in the painting. It's a, it is a classic Twilight Zone, and uh, <laughs> folks, you should find that if you can. Although I don't know if he has it now. That's an older show. It might be behind a paywall. I think or something. it
2: made it into one of his books. Oh, yeah, cool, very that story.
3: Yeah. So anyway, check out Jim Harold if you haven't already. Well, we're gonna get into our last segment with Brandon here. We're gonna find out from him what his favorite thing is in his collection in his house in Austin. So,
2: Brandon, in your vast collection of spirit communication paraphernalia, do you have any favorites?
1: I have a spirit slate by Fred Evans, a famous, probably the second most famous slate writing medium that includes original spirit writing from him, preserved after its use Easter Sunday, 1927 in San Francisco. It has someone posted some clear you know, cellophane over it or something, and uh, and inscribed on it when when the messages were collected. Probably the penultimate automatic writing device would be my plate glass Kirby and Company planchette, which is a thick plate glass transparent planchette with beautiful brass fittings. But I have to say, and then you know, I have some super rare talking boards. My favorites would include uh, some of the original Charles Kenner talking boards from the original Ouija Run. Uh, with the paddle-shaped planchette, always a favorite. I do own an original W.S. Reed Esprito with Revelator talking board set with planchette, uh, having one of only about three of those planchettes still in existence, as well as a very rare Volo board, which was produced by one of the founders of the Ouija company that was an early competitor who got booted and and uh, produced his, his own board.
3: So with all this stuff in your house, anything strange ever happening or...? pretty fortunately
1: I, I sleep pretty well at night amongst the, <laughs> the the screams of the damned and issuing forth from the <laughs> open portals to beyond
2: but you're not using them that's the point I w- I think somebody would say right. is that uh, it's intent your intent is to display and inform and entertain and and uh, be a, a keeper of the Ouija flame and you're not really all that interested in in diving into the portal or sticking your head through the veil of the other side as it were but what do you hope to accomplish uh by this collection and your interest in it what's your greatest achievement
1: well the ultimate goal is a work in progress so for the past 10 plus years i've been working on a massive visually dense coffee table book that has literally taken me all over the world. I, I mean, I've, I've been to several places in Europe and England, all over the US, documenting items in private and public collections. And this book is coming together. It'll be a chronological exploration of the evolution and archaeology of spirit communication apparatus. And uh, it's well on its way. And, uh, you know, hopefully in the next year or two will come to completion. I'm in progress now and and really getting into the meat of its completion. And so that to me will be the big feather in my cap. I mean, sure. You know, I love my social media following and, you know, sort of informing everyone there, but that will be sort of the ultimate expression where I'm able to take not only the items I've collected, but also the items I've documented, Mm. put them all in one exhaustive, comprehensive, (laughs) beautifully illustrated visually dense book and that into people's hands and there will be no more comprehensive history that we will be able to provide than that you know and it'll trace all forms of spirit communication um, devices spirit trumpets spirit slates talking boards you know and related disciplines and their effect on pop culture and of the rise and fall of spiritualism and other related aspects, it's
2: the final word from beyond.
1: Well, I like to think it'll be the definitive history of this of this discipline. And after that, who knows?
3: I can't wait to see that. That sounds amazing. I'm, yeah, me I'm, I'm sign me up for a copy
1: right now. <laughs> yeah.
3: So, well, let me ask you this: We talked a little bit off the air earlier today. You have a couple of stores on Congress yeah. in Austin, which have been adversely affected by the coronavirus is there any way that our listeners can support you or, or do anything for you? Is there anything that you want to share with them uh, that uh, ways that they can back you up and, and help you out at this time?
1: Well, I, I own uh, two retail operations on South Congress here in Austin, a Monkey See, Monkey Do toy store and Big Top Candy Shop. Both sort of famous in their own right. Big Top in particular, kind of a world-famous destination, has become kind of a Austin institution in its 13-year history. Certainly, uh, anybody who's inclined to look us up on social media and give us a follow and, and check out what we're doing. You know, we do, uh, particularly my toy store, does do a lot of online sales sales of particularly vintage toys. And uh, if you don't twist our arm too hard, big top can sometimes we can be talked into shipping. We don't have a great shipping operation. We are in Texas where it is too hot to ship candy effectively (laughs) about nine months out of the year. And unfortunately every time we're on food network or travel channel, we get a deluge of emails saying, send me some licorice, send me this an inordinate amount from Australia. I don't know how many Australian listeners yet, but we have so many fans in Australia. And unfortunately, we're not great at shipping because it's just a hazardous process. So, uh, but we would appreciate the follow and just check out what we're doing. We keep it dynamic and uh, have a lot of fun with it. And we hope to keep doing it because we were already facing retailers and restaurants and small businesses in this country are already facing a rental crisis. The increasing cost of real estate gets passed through to renters. And uh, those costs are skyrocketing all over the country and sales are not keeping up with what landlords expect to get in rent, especially as we get displaced by larger national chains uh, and smaller national chains, but corporate backed chains. And so any sort of support on a local level, go out and support your local businesses, even if you're not here in Austin, just go out, spend your money locally. Those small businesses need it so much and your dollar will stay local and it'll come back to you tenfold. So that I would encourage that more than anything else.
2: Wow. Well, thanks once again to Brandon. I really enjoyed that conversation. I think you and I should go to Austin one of these days, get some good uh, barbecue and, and just see his collection and really get into the history of all this stuff. It's yeah. fascinating. And, and the background behind it is fascinating, I find. you know, And it's on the one hand, what's interesting about this subject is that, yeah, it is kind of just a board game in the context of a spiritualist movement in the United States and elsewhere. It's a worldwide popular game now, but it's really woven into the fabric of our history. And within that context, Guy, let me ask you, at some point, this fun family game or this fun, wholesome pastime as it was seen in the mid to late 19th century turned dark. It became um, something that you didn't want to play with that was dangerous, perhaps something that could unleash evil. And and yeah, we talked about the exorcist and popular culture. And then, of course, all the modern day now horror movies you see where annoying people uh, foolishly play with one and it unleashes all kinds of uh, hell on them. Yeah. But how did that gradually happen? Was it the changing of the times? Was there some backdrop that uh, we became more cynical and suspicious and creeped out? And certainly some of that, yes, is uh, part of the satanic panic and our fears uh, of things happening to us that are beyond control? The Summer of Love turned dark with Charles Manson and Son of Sam and, and just some horrible things happening in society. And did the board take that turn with those events in that cultural backdrop of like things being much more sinister than we were hoping to imagine? Do you remember like growing up what the attitude was of the Ouija board and how that changed over your lifetime?
3: It was mysterious and spooky. It was in my house. We had it when I was a kid. Oh, you did?
2: You Oh, did I ask you that? Did you actually have a copy of that? Uh, yeah, um, and I still do. I have one. <laughs> but it's not in the game closet. It's uh, ah, it's hidden away. It's in the demonic uh, locker. Yes. In your safe space. Yeah. yeah.
3: I grew up sort of respectful of it. I didn't have the fascination with all the things we talk about when I was younger so much. I was more preoccupied with growing up and being a kid and all that. And then it's only when I got older that I turned to the dark side. But um, (laughs) I did realize that I started to get a little freaked out about it when I was in college. That was just my personal. Right, Right. It wasn't really fear. I was just like, I don't think I really want to mess with that. But, you know, yeah. I don't know. Is that in my head? I had experiences with it when I was younger, as I told you at the top of the show, where it seemed like it was giving information out when me and my friends mm. would use it that neither one of us were directing. But you have no way of knowing whether right, right. the other person's pushing it or you're pushing it collectively or the ideomotor response is happening and it's a subconscious sure. choice. But there and again, you make the very good point it's a chicken and the egg thing because like whether the mm. information is coming from an outside source or somehow some outside source is controlling you to transmit it. Yeah. What's the difference? doesn't really matter. If you get past the fact okay, let's, okay, we can, we can all have the conversation about I'm the skeptic. I'm not. It's going to be the mundane explanation. No, it's spiritual. Get past that. Forget that. Forget proving if it. If it's real, the right. next question becomes, where is the message coming from? Sure. You sure. know,
2: because, well, that's the thing, and and that's what I would say. Uh, do you remember an answer that stuck with you? Is there anything that you remember that? No, was like- there
3: was never any super prescient thing. I just remember feeling like me and my friends were not in charge of the words it was spelling out.
2: Ah, uh, interesting. Yeah,
3: because I was always, even though it was way before we had an ideas for the show or whatever, right. I was always like clinical about. Trying to create a control group when you do something like this—it's like, okay, I'm going to clear my mind. You know, don't think of stay mm-hmm. puffed. Let's see what we can get going here. You know, most <laughs> yeah. of the time, I think when yeah. I was using it, it was with my best friend growing up. Uh, his name was Buddy, and uh, I, I think he used to listen to the show. I don't know if we don't talk that much anymore. We're still friends, but I remember that neither one of us was trying to mess with the other one when we were doing it. We were very, we were deadly serious about it. Like yeah yeah <laughs> you know roll yeah yes, yeah you should wasn't a joke it's in
2: the instructions yeah
3: yeah so but I also remember yeah that thing where you have to like try to get it on everybody's knee we did that too
2: oh yes yeah yeah and I wish we'd we asked Brandon that again. about I that I
3: should that. text him and. Maybe we can bring it up in (laughs) in part two. Does
2: that affect the operation of the board? Yeah. Yes,
3: and uh, part two, which is going to be decidedly different from part one, because this was the history lesson. We've covered a lot of stuff here about the background. Yes,
2: you have to understand. It's such a popular uh, device that comes up all the time, and you know, horror movies, uh, spooky movies, paranormal activity. One and two had one in there. Breaking Bad, I think it popped up in one, and so there's. It's certainly part of our culture, and certainly, of course, denounced by, uh, or started getting denounced, and that's the turn that we saw, is that it's an idea that could fit with Christian dogma of the time. Yes. There wasn't a shaming or a shunning of people using the board or the board itself. It could fit with all that. So you weren't shamed for using one, and that, of course, changed probably, as we said, like from the 70s into the 80s and, uh, you know, the satanic panic and all that, And, and that's another topic we might cover later on, but... The ideas about it changed, and that it wasn't so wholesome anymore. So, but like you said, uh, you know, where is this information coming from? If it is within our subconscious, then are we tapping into the answers? Where are the answers coming from? My stance on it is that if it is coming from within your subconscious, if like I said, if you if you're not actually trying to move it, and it's the uh, idiomotor phenomenon. And it's just something that somebody, you know, it, it, the answers within someone's subconscious that uh, was buried. Like, uh, what was, uh, what did my great grandmother call me as a nickname? And, and it spells out the board. It's like you'd forgotten about it or other people didn't know about it, but your subconscious did. And that the board moves to spell that out. Like, that's interesting to me. Or if it tells you to do something, certainly there's been a lot of creepy, freaky stories about people doing weird actions, uh, even murder that the board told them to do. People have gotten future premonitions that came true. According to them, there's all kinds of stories about what that information is that comes through the board. What I would say my stance is whatever that information is, I would find it interesting. I might do a session with some people who knew what they were doing, sit in on one and and want to record it. But the one thing I would not do is I would not trust that information, no matter where it's supposedly coming from. Take it with a grain of salt. I mean, it might blow my mind, like like the session you had, like, where is this information coming from? Who would know that? How could they possibly know that? Uh, does it know things about me? It's kind of like what you would hear through uh, EVP apps that people have on their phones now. So for me, one of the bigger and most interesting questions about this as it arches into part two and some of the darker and creepier stories that we're all waiting for, because that's what we love. And that's also part of the mystery and the lore about the Ouija board that that, that keeps us intrigued and has since the beginning. I wonder about its nature as it is seen from the mid-19th century into the mid-20th century, where it's mostly seen as, uh, yeah, it's spooky, it's a little creepy, but it's good fun, it's essentially harmless for the most part, and I'm sure there's creepy, crazy stories that happened way back when that we just don't hear about, not like today, not like we like to relish in them now, but viewed against the backdrop of of a darkness that takes a turn in society and ends up where we are now. And that general view, perhaps it's like John Keel's proposed idea about uh, ultra-terrestrials and high strangeness. Is it so much that the planet is haunted or are we haunted? Is the human psyche what's actually haunted? So against the backdrop of our attitude about the Ouija board in its over uh, 128-year history, almost 130 years now, looking at it against that, is the board more like a window in which we can see this external evil that is creeping up on us over the last hundred years? Or is the Ouija board more of a mirror that reflects our own haunted psyches? <laughs>
3: That's going to wrap up part one of our series on the Ouija board. We'll be back next week with part two, and that's when it's time to hear some of the craziest Ouija board stories we could find, including a bunch that you guys sent in.
2: Please remember to support our sponsors. They help keep the show free and the lights on in Blanket Fortiana. Special thanks to John Bolin. My name is spelled.
1: W-O-R-M. Hey there, everybody. From Tennessee. From Dallas, Texas. Thank you for listening to Astonishing Legends. Galaxy-wide in perpetuity.
3: Our show is edited by
2: Sarah Voorhees-Wendell and co-produced by Tess Feifel, who is also our head of research. Our theme, which is available as a ringtone, was composed by Judson Crane, and our sound design and additional composing is by Ryan McCullough. Special thanks to the Astonishing Research Corps.